0: Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you at LSE. Today is a very special evening for us. Even though the light is very cold, that is because our technician couldn't figure out how to put on the warm light, but it is a a warm day because what we are celebrating today is the publication of Jan Paulsen's book, The Idea of Arbitration, which you've seen at the entrance exposed on the OUP stand. Um, Jan, of course, wears many hats, but one of them is um, that of our centennial professor at LSE and visiting professor. He is, of course, also at the University of Miami and former head of Freshfields. And during all that work, he has found some time to write a book. Not only one, but this is yet another book, which we shall be debating today. Jan loves debates, and those of you who have come to our previous LSE arbitration debates will know that he is featured in all of them, and you have seen him being rough and have seen others being rough with him. Um, we will not quite emulate that tonight. I think tonight is a more fun evening in that sense. Um, yeah. But we thought that having yeah, exactly. two people debate, the ideas of Jan on arbitration them, like, even, like, would be um, yeah. 5.30 that that's still works, I mean most law firms here. <laughs> Can you tell him to turn off the microphone? <laughs> Sorry for that. Um, so we'll be having three panels today where three key ideas of Jan, in Jan's book, Jan's book will be discussed. Some of the the panels will be more debating, others will be maybe a little more commenting, but the idea is to tease out some of those issues that he has raised in his book, and um, then hopefully to invite you into the discussion. Um, As always, the best part of academia is not having ideas, the best part is exposing them and actually getting a reaction to them. So um, you're all invited to ultimately keep switched on and think. I know that doing that for three hours straight is a challenging task, um, but the good thing is that in between panels, people have to get off and on, so you will have time to breathe deeply, relax, and come back afterwards. Um, This event is also uh, a special one because we are combining it with our partners from Sciences Po Paris. This is... um, a project which Orasia Mirwat, is sitting at the panel already um, has initiated which is called private international law as global governance and of course arbitration plays a central role in this interface between conflict of laws, applicable laws, conflict of jurisdictions and ideas of regulation, self-regulation and maybe even public policy. Um, that being said I propose that we will start our first panel, which is not perfectly in order with uh, logic. Probably the gateway issue would be the first one to debate. But actually, unfortunately, um, Orash has to be back in Paris for an important meeting tomorrow and teaching actually tomorrow. And therefore, um, we moved us, because I'm on that panel as well, on uh, the interface between public policy and arbitration up first. Then afterwards, we will be seeing um, the debate on the gateways issue, Um, competence, competence, separability, which Jan has been writing on in his book quite a bit, and then ultimately, the look into the crystal glass, the future of arbitration, what can we expect to come out of all of of this. Um, Jan kindly agreed to say some kind words at the end. He refused to say anything about the content. And I think that uh, is uh, well-deserved. I think you can just sit back and enjoy this debate. Thank you very much for being here. And, um, well, let's start. Thank you.
1: Good evening. I'm a bit disappointed to hear we're not supposed to be rough. I hope everyone will be rough. Uh, It's a pleasure, of course, to be uh, moderating this first panel. And I thank uh, both uh, Jan and Tariq for inviting me to do so. The topic we will be addressing using the ideas expressed by uh, Jan in his book as a foil is the question of whether arbitrators should be allowed to apply the law and decide issues of public policy. Before introducing the topic further and giving the floor to each of our panelists, uh, I thought I might, uh, with your permission, say a brief word of introduction on the book itself. Uh, I have in my hand an illicit copy of it, uh, because so precious is it that it's been going around in that format for the past few weeks already. Uh, And in his foreword to his book, uh, Jan makes it clear that this book is not about, and I quote, the practice of arbitration. Its aim, he says, is foundational. He refers to the founding fathers of uh, French arbitration academia, and one might say French arbitration as a whole, uh, and perhaps our field as a whole, as we practice it today, and that's Motulski and David, and Goldman and Aupetit. He notes, and I think it is fair to say he deplores, the absence of theoretical thinking in the common law world, which might be said to be at a par with the works of these scholars. But it was not always thus. Uh, for instance, Francis Mann's well-known essay of 1967, Lex Facit Arbitrum, uh, was part of a raging debate he was then having with Professor Goldman uh, about the whole idea of, which is still so topical today, of the existence of an autonomous arbitral legal order. But 50 years on, I think it is fair to say that there is no Francis Mann to engage or respond to the scholars on the other side of the channel. The upshot, of course, is that it's all too easy for English law to be portrayed as being stuck in time. Uh, Again, to take the example of Francis Mann's article, it is a very convenient straw man that is always brought out uh, whenever you have uh, scholars from abroad wanting to attack uh, English arbitration and more generally common law world arbitration Uh, as unduly, and the word normally used peroratively, is territorial. And this is all the more regrettable when you think that, in fact, our courts here in England, in particular the Supreme Court, has taken a decidedly comparative law approach. And I'm thinking, of course, of cases like DALA, Fiona Trust, and more recently AES Hydro, which will demonstrate the extent to which our courts are ready to consider writings from scholars and um, Cases from other parts of the world. Now, despite Jan's warning that his book does not pre- present a unified theory, I hope that it will, in fact, go a long way to start filling this lacuna from our side of the channel. It is a collection of careful and thought provoking ideas which have, as their unifying characteristic, the knowledge and wisdom of one who has seen it all and thought about it a great deal on the way. For that reason, I hope this book will be translated into French very soon for the edification of the masses. And I suspect the title, Jan, will not remain as modest once uh, in the hands of French publishers. Uh, Professor Gaillard's book, Legal Theory of International Arbitration, is known to French speakers as Aspect philosophique de l'arbitrage international. In the same way, I fully expect that this idea of arbitration will cross the channel as, pour une métaphysique relative de l'arbitrage international, subtitle, une critique de la critique de la raison pure appliquée à la résolution des différents internationaux. <laughs> Very good. Now, the parts of the book which we will actually be uh, discussing on this first panel deal with the application by arbitrators of the law and public policy. For those of you who already have the book, uh, the the parts of the book we'll be looking at are parts 4.5 and 4.6, which deal with um, mandatory norms from a purely national perspective. So if you don't have a cross-border aspect, and Chapter 7 deals with uh, the transnational aspects. To address this, we have two prominent academics from each side of the channel, linked we now hear by this... uh, um, official link between Sciences Po and LSE. Horatia Murwat is a full professor at Sciences Po, where she's director of the Global Business Law and Governance Law and Economic Globalization and Accountability and Social Innovation Specialities of the Masters. Uh, she received a PhD from Panthéon Assas, Paris II, in '85. is a professor agrégé and is a tenured professor in private international law and in comparative law. Uh, she is also the editor-in-chief of the Revue Critique de droit international privé and a member of the publication committees of a number of other journals. Jan klein is an associate professor at law, of law at the LSE where he teaches international commercial arbitration and contracts. He's a qualified German lawyer, is admitted to the bar in Hamburg, and prior to joining LSE, he worked as a research fellow, first at the Max Planck Institute in Hamburg, and was appointed as an assistant professor at the HEC School of Management in Paris. So without further ado, I will give the floor now to Jan. Thank
0: you. So I'm trying to think about framing my first intervention on the question of should arbitrators be allowed to apply the law, and should they be allowed to apply matters of public policy? Uh, decide on matters of public policy, I um, thought I have to give myself a direction. And the direction is that actually, in his book, Jan is taking grave issues with two of my personal top heroes, and those are Kielsen and Francis Mann. So, that being said, you imagine on which side I'm going to come down, at least for the sake of discussion tonight. Um, So I thought I'd first kind of look into what is the essence of what Jan has been saying in this chapter four, which, as I said, is on should arbitrators apply the law? Can we allow them to apply the law? Can we entrust the matters of public policy? And I will, because he will not respond, which is almost a shame, um, abstain from commenting on uh, or challenging him on um, his rhetorics, because they are quite impressive in that book, um, there are quite some rants against national judges. We have frequent links between criticism of arbitration with authoritarian regimes. And um, actually what we find there is a very strong manifesto of a liberal mindset. And I would dare say even sometimes slightly anarchistic when it comes to questioning um, why all these states, pompous state apparatus is really so much supposedly better in adjudicating um, disputes between parties. So, I think um, his book is quite a liberal manifesto, and arbitration plays a central role in that. So, what does he, in a nutshell, propose to us? And um, I'm not sure if I did it correctly, but I tried to distill what I found in there. So, first proposal. Arbitration is not against public policy. Arbitration, on the contrary, is itself a public policy with the ratification of the New York Convention, states have accepted that they want to further arbitration. That is a first starting point and I think a very important one because we engaged from there on into a balancing process in balancing different policies against each other. And it is really the question how much priority can and must we give to arbitration. The second point would be arbitration actually furthers public policies because Arbitration agreements should not be interpreted narrowly, but they should be interpreted so as to include all issues, which means all is, also the issues governed by mandatory rules. And only then can be ensured that those mandatory rules will actually be fully applied and the conflict will be properly resolved in accordance with the underlying public policies. So arbitration actually furthers public policy instead of compromising it. Arbitrators should be trusted to apply all applicable uh, uh, rules properly. That means entrusting the arbitrators with the application of public policies. That is having a policy in favor of arbitration. Public policies are not surrendered to any kind of black hole of arbitration. Arbitration will not suck up public po- interests and compromise them, rather courts will set aside or will refuse to enforce arbitral awards if the award violates fundamental public policies, which can happen especially, can, the emphasis on can, when tribunals fail to apply or misapply um, fundamental mandatory rules. So Jan accepts that that can happen, and he says that is not a problem. Courts can remedy that. These proposals are based on the following premises. Public policy cannot be accepted by courts as a wild-card argument. That's an important point. Only positive enactments of um, mandatory rules should be, relevant, should be the relevant standards. We should not be just having a go at certain points by invoking public policy. And I would add, almost as a continental lawyer teaching uh, English law... Um, when talking also to students from the continent, just like you can't just plead good faith at any point when it pleases you. It has to be structured, it has to be put down, it has to be uh, uh, um, crystallized in certain principles accepted by courts or put down in positive law. The other premise is that there can be no presumption that arbitrators will not be capable of applying public policies they are indeed qualified, they are indeed in as good a position as a judge to do so. And then, ultimately, only violations of mandatory rules that actually, specifically, amount to an outcome that is incompatible with fundamental public policies, only then should courts intervene. Now, basically, one could say, that is a very sovereign account of where the law should be standing, and actually stands, and I think Salim is going to say something about that later on, but one could say, so what? That is, you know, again, a sober account of what we are actually expecting to see. And then I engaged in the exercise of looking, you know, what do we have right now? And since the publication of this book, which is really just a few weeks ago, um, three interesting uh, decisions have come out on different parts of the world which I think fit in with this but also give me the possibility to maybe inject some um, criticism in the spirit of Francis Mann and maybe even worse in the spirit of Heinrich Kronstein Heinrich Kronstein, another uprooted emigrated uh, German lawyer who left uh, Nazi Germany and became a professor in uh, Georgetown in the United States and was very influential in building up the U.S. antitrust system, <coughs> and wrote a famous article by which he suspected and actually argued that arbitration is a tool for powerful private interests to usurp power. So, what are these three cases that I'm interested in? Um. What we actually see in the case law in the metropolitan part of the world, let's put it that way, that is the part of the world where we do see lots of arbitrations happening, I would argue we actually don't see too much of the criticism that Jan is putting forward, the skepticism against arbitration, but we're actually seeing judges actually being you know, very favorable to arbitration. And we don't have to go as far as uh, the Bali decision in 2007 of the French Cour de Cassation where it was rather gloriously pronounced that arbitration was part of international justice unattached to any legal order, which then is the basis, more or less, for this book. Um, By the way, pronounced by Jean-Pierre Ancel on the 29th of June 2007, as it happens, the 30th of June 2007 was his last last day of office. Anyway, let's look to... Oh, oh, by the way, yes, and I can't help saying that at LSE, Jan still mentioned this creation around Putrabali Bali as Parisian poetry. So, that's just to play the ball over to Horatio for later on. Um, and I noticed that in the later published article, he scratched the part of poetry and said just theory, I think. Um, so, three decisions I would like to bring to you. On the 28th of January this year, we have the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals deciding the matter, THI of New Mexico and Patton. In this decision, the court plowed through 30 years of case law to clarify that state laws, U.S. state laws, that aim at invalidating arbitration agreements specifically are preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. And in doing that, it affirmed more than 11 times that arbitration cannot be held to be inferior to dispute settlement by state courts. That was very intense. I suppose Jan would agree with that affirmation, at least in abstract. In the specific case, however, we're talking about one of those cases where we Europeans, and I include English with that, can only scratch our heads. It's one of those infamous nursing home cases in which a family of an old person in a nursing home finds out that somewhere in the contract signed by their beloved one, there was an arbitration agreement barring them from bringing claims in state courts relating to negligence or mistreatment. That, so they want to prove, led to serious suffering and ultimately death. In the contract with the deceased Mr. Patton, the nursing home Handily, had excluded from the arbitration agreement all types of claims that could be potentially, but which it itself could potentially bring against its clients, so reserving the right to bring those claims in state courts. Whereas the federal district court found that, under the general applicable New York-Mexico common law of contracts, the arbitration agreement would be unconscionable and therefore unenforceable, the court of appeals reversed on the basis that the applied New Mexican case law. Founded the unconscionability of that clause on the fact that the agreement subjected the claimants to arbitration. The central line in the judgment is, after all, the court spoke of subjecting the weaker party to arbitration, thereby clearly evincing the view that having to arbitrate is a claim. <laughs> thereby clearly evincing the 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 view that having to arbitrate a claim is disadvantageous. End of the quote. This is actually the only line that you find in the decision that really justifies the application of the Supreme Court's holding in Concepcion that common law defenses to arbitration uh, demands are preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act if they derive their meaning from the fact that an agreement to arbitrate is at issue. So if the law is merely about saying arbitration is not okay, then that is preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act, imposing the policy in favor of arbitration. One could argue that this goes somewhat beyond putting arbitration agreements on the same footing as ordinary contract clauses as was originally intended by the Federal Arbitration Act. Arbitration clauses have become almost sacrosanct. You can't touch them. If you touch them specifically, ah, the Arbitration Act imposes its policy in favor of arbitration. Given the circumstances of the case and probably a look into the eyes of the daughter of the deceased client of the nursing home, the young clerk preparing the judgment seemed to be, have, seemed to be compelled to go through lengths and excessive repetitions of the mantra that arbitration is not inferior for justifying the outcome. Indeed, the American case law is full of cases like this, and actually, with quite some five to four US Supreme Court decisions split across the traditional ideological lines regarding the myriads of arbitration agreements in consumer and employment contracts. In his book, Jan merely observes in Section 4.3 that many arbitration practitioners would be perfectly content with consumer if consumer transactions were excluded from arbitration. Let me be a little bit more blunt and affirmative. In Europe, we clearly subject our policy in favor of arbitration to the higher policy of protecting weaker parties. And, as asked by Jan explicitly in his book, We do that explicitly in positive legislation, making arbitration clauses, which means agreements concluded before the dispute has arisen, largely unenforceable in this type of contracts. I'm well aware of the procedural context that that is very different in the US and why companies want and maybe need arbitration clauses, but it's difficult to understand that the arbitration mantra is still upheld so categorically for these categories of contracts outside commercial relationships, especially in the light of some rather dubious practices. Protecting public interests might require limiting the use of arbitration. And there's nothing wrong about that. Maybe I'm just one of those Kronsteins of my generation. Much more sober, and as one would expect, is the second case I want to turn to. That is the one rendered just a day earlier, on the 27th of January, by the High Court here in in London. Um, In the case, in the matter, Interprods Limited and De La Rue International Limited. The case evolved around the question whether a party could terminate a contract on the basis of corruption and whether an arbitrator could make that determination. The unsuccessful defendant, Interprots, is a Nigerian company that acted as an agent and distributor for De La Rue, the leading printer of banknotes with its seat in the United Kingdom, in return for payment of commissions. The dispute arose when an employee of Interprot supposedly informed Delarue that the commissions will partially be used to pay bribes and corrupt Nigerian officials. A circumstance that Delarue claims to have been wholly unaware of. Be as it may, the Office of Serious Fraud recently decided after six years not to pursue further its investigation relating to corruption allegations of Delarue in Cameroon and other countries. Delarue used this incident to trigger the termination of the agency agreement and refused further payment. Interprots sought to bring a claim for payment under the LCA clause in the contract, but after some back and forth, it was ultimately Delarue who initiated the proceedings in order to get a declaration of non-liability as a consequence of the termination. The crucial issue was whether the arbitrator could decide that the termination was lawful on account of an alleged admission of Interprots of intended bribery and corruption. When the arbitrator accepted jurisdiction and issued an award in favor of De La Rue, declaring non-liability, Interprod's challenged the award under section 67 for lack of <laughs> substantive jurisdiction. Mr. Justice Tier swiftly rejected this challenge with a short reference to Fiona Trust and the understanding that the arbitration agreement can be understood to cover also the determination whether the contract could be terminated on the grounds of corruption. He felt all the more confident as the contract explicitly provided that Delarue could terminate the agreement if Interprot committed any criminal offense. It seems to be a picture book example, or maybe even rather uh, the idea of arbitration book example, where the alleged public policy argument ultimately boiled down to contractual interpretation entrusted to the arbitrator. Interprot's argument that the allegations were that the allegations made against it were a very serious criminal conduct and that the parties cannot have intended such allegations to be determined by arbitration was thereby out of the window, more or less just like the argument in Fiona Trust that but for the bribery there would not have been any contract and therefore no arbitration agreement. I will have to admit that I would love to go into more detail on Fiona Trust and explain to you why I think that Lord Hoffman's decision is flawed, but I'm afraid I have neither the time nor the authority to do so, let alone because um, Sir Bernard Ricks and Charles Ponce have total jurisdiction and exclusive jurisdiction of the gateway issues in the next panel. But let me observe, make just two observations on the very specific circumstances of Interprods. <coughs> one is a nerdy one, and the other one is a devilish one. From a mere position of contractual interpretation, who is to determine whether there has been criminal offense, which is the ground for allowing termination under the contract? Surely it is not the other party which can do so by simply alleging it, let alone determining it unilaterally. What about the presumption of innocence? that so prominently features not in the laws of all non-authoritarian countries, but also in every single Convention or Charter on Human Rights. Of course, the O.J. Simpson case in the United States and many other cases remind us that also civil jurisdictions may decide on how to qualify certain potentially criminal conduct and that different standards of proof may be leading to different outcomes. So what's the deal? It's just about paying money, isn't it? But let's stick to the O.J. Simpson case. Legally speaking, O.J. Simpson has never been uh, convicted to have committed a criminal offense. He has just been held liable to pay damages for the fact that he, on the balance of probabilities, more likely than not, did kill his wife. This doesn't say anything about whether he committed a criminal offense. What does this notion of severability, if you want so, between the... Appreciation of the facts and the qualification in criminal law terms tell us about the intention of the parties when they have entrusted the lawful termination. Sorry, when they have the lawful. I'm sorry, my text is bad. What does the notion of severability tell us about the intention of the parties if we know that termination is allowed only on the basis of a criminal offense? Leaving aside the question, which country's criminal law has to be applied and which standards of proof for this matter, can we consider that the parties meant anything less than some kind of official conviction in courts with criminal jurisdiction? I know that all of this is very much insisting on the specific wording of the contract in a specific case, but what I want to point out, or the point that I want to make is – it might be a little bit too easy to just insist on the reduction of issues of illegality to contractual interpretation and allocation of risk. There might be some more considerations to bear in mind. And now my devilish point. As I mentioned, the U.S. Uh, – sorry, the U.K. Office of Serious Fraud stopped its, alleg- its investigation into De La Rue's behavior, and absolutely they are entitled, as everyone else, to the presumption of innocence, especially after having not been cleared, but more or less so. Let's just, very hypothetically, and I say this is devilish, let's just think hypothetically and abstractly. How would someone who actually wanted to use agents in foreign countries to obtain public contracts through methods including corruption and fraud go about? It would certainly make a whole lot, more of, sen- a whole lot of sense to make the payments through some offshore accounts, such as in Jersey, as happened in Delarue, it would be brilliant to be able to terminate the contract in case of criminal offenses. Not only because you can claim to have a compliance policy in place, but because you can then always terminate the contract unilaterally at will. At least when you include an arbitration agreement, because you get from the arbitrator the confirmation of the existence of a criminal offense without having to go through the pains of some criminal proceedings in some national state courts. I think by now you do associate me with Kronstein quite a bit. Now, and to continue with my Kronsteinian theme, yesterday's decision of the Cour de Cassation. In the case, Schneider versus CLP Industries Limited. This is another Nigerian case involving allegations of corruption. Here, it is an Austrian producer who contracted with a Nigerian company as its agent and distributor for products, Destined for public projects and find out that its highly successful Nigerian partner apparently involved the daughter of the Nigerian president acting under false name to facilitate obtaining public contracts. When Schneider then refused to pay the commissions, it was sued and condemned in arbitration despite its defence that this would be giving effect to a contract that giving effect to this contract would be giving effect to corrupt practices prohibited under Nigerian law. Its attempts to give the award rendered in Paris, sorry, its attempts at the award rendered in Paris to be set aside failed as the Cour d'Appel invoked the famous jurisprudence Talès, that courts will limit their control to the caractère flagrant, effectif, et concrete de la violation alléguée, or if others have put it more plastically, si ça crève les yeux, if it burns the eye. It doesn't seem that the eyes of the Cour d'Appel hurt a lot. And despite quite some very arbitration friendly colleagues in Paris increasingly suggesting that time is ripe for the Cour de Cassation to overthink its Thales position, its extremely minimalist position, um, this was reinforced. This position was reinforced by the Cour de Cassation yesterday in a short line that the annulment judge is the judge for admitting or not the awards insertion into the French legal system, insertion that is, from that international legal sphere, and not the judge of the subject matter for which the parties have concluded the arbitration agreement. All this being said, I want to come back to the beginning. I do not have much to disagree with the overall theory that Jan has laid out in Chapter 4, except for this last point. On the last, page, on the last pages, Jan tries to formulate some kind of compromise solution regarding the degree of judicial review of arbitral awards on public policy grounds, seemingly on flexible middle grounds between the maximalist and the minimalist position. And it's really worth reading that. One can quibble, as I would maybe, with his predilection for the Swiss federal court's understanding that public policy only encompasses those values which constitute the foundation of any legal system. But one may doubt whether the availability of redress by way of regulatory intervention is really all that relevant in the light of a strong public policy in favor of private enforcement of competition law, but indeed where transgressions are only felt inter partes, where the transgressed rule has not been sufficiently clear, and where the failure to respect norms of public policy does not have an effective, concrete and actual impact because of the other corrective circumstances, then the court should not entertain a public policy objection. It is only then, in his summary, where Jan adds that the award must not only be, uh, that the award must not only concretely but also flagrantly undermine the policy involved. This is where I would disagree. This is precisely the crucial step that will allow private parties to use arbitration to convert mandatory rules representing public policies that are so fundamental that a state cannot tolerate their derogation either by contract or by choice of law into règles d'application semi nécessaires as. Luca Radicati famously coined this phenomenon, that is, semi-mandatory rules whose imperativity is relativized by the mere contractual option for arbitration. This being said, if we take out this little piece of flagrant violations of public policy, I would agree with everything that he has put down, but I think that this element of judges saying we have to look only on the face of it and see a violation of public and if we see a violation of public policy fine we will go after it but if we don't see it we will not dig any deeper i think that is something where we still can go a little bit longer in the discussion thinking about what does it mean to have a public policy altogether and what is the mandate that courts have to uphold public policies under their constitutions
1: i will leave now the floor to orosia thank you Thank you very much, Jan. I, I allowed Jan to go on for perhaps a bit longer than planned, uh, one, because Horatia uh, tells me she can be shorter, but also as the more you were speaking and the more I could see a very lively debate shaping up. So, uh, um, and just perhaps before I give the floor to Horatia, two, two very quick points. Uh, one, you mentioned uh, Jan's uh, reference to the public policy behind opposition by reference, of course, to the New York Convention, but to me, what struck me as his main point was the public policy of Pacta Sun Servanda. And I think one exhortation which I took away from that chapter is, whenever considering an allegation of public policy, never forget that you have this implied public policy, that you are upholding the party's agreement. And I, I, I thought that was pretty important. And secondly, and that we may debate perhaps a bit longer afterwards, we touched upon it before, before this panel, uh, there may be a danger in assuming that, well, here are all these decisions in the developed world, let's call it what it is, uh, saying arbitration is not inferior to, to the courts. And so it's, it's all fine, and we can now attack that premise. But I think we shouldn't forget how difficult it was to get there. That in itself was a struggle, and perhaps we can debate that a little bit from a developing world perspective uh, in a moment. Horatio.
2: Thank you very much. Um, If you're wondering what what I'm doing here, I have no idea about arbitration. Uh, It is because we do co-organize events uh, that... That is not true. (laughs) uh, Well, not much. Um, We do co-organize with Sciences Po and the LSE events that touch on private international law as global governance, and it so happens that actually... Uh, The the topic of the idea of arbitration has turned out very well at the crossroads of these uh, two uh, topics, particularly uh, Chapter 7, which is what I'd like to um, perhaps touch on. Uh, But before I actually go into the substance um, to the extent that I can, uh, I'd like to say why um, I think it is so interesting and important to have this particular book, of course, but this type of literature, in other words, the type of scholarship uh, on whatever you like to call it, the idea, the metaphysics, the philosophy, the general theory of um, arbitration, I think that the first reason is that the availability of um, arbitration an arbitral forum uh, in international uh, matters, let's say, Um, availability that has become the uh, existence of a parallel system of dispute resolution, of justice, perhaps, um, has had an enormously significant uh, impact on global governance. I think um, Jan Poulsen's phrase is authority which cuts across the state, something like that. Uh, cuts across state uh, authority um, the, the, the availability of arbitration has had a considerable am- impact on policy what the relation is between public policy and policy in general is there again maybe semantics, maybe uh, something more profound but anyway on policy makers obviously uh, and on the structure of markets um, indirectly via uh, litigation strategy, for instance. But this is a... a, Arbitrators are extremely important players in the uh, realm of global governance and therefore um, of particular interest, it seems to me, to to, to students of transnational and private international law. Um, Secondly... um, a point that's, uh, I think, very well made in the book is that we are all, um, our thought is very much embedded in what Jan Paulson calls our mental maps. So, this is uh, elevating uh, the question to the level of uh, epistemology, legal epistemology. Um, our thought is obviously uh, embedded in a certain paradigm. And uh, for private international lawyers, having this uh, body of scholarship that's growing up uh, from the perspective of arbitration is extremely interesting because it shakes up a certain number of ideas. Uh, we tend to be extremely court-focused. In fact, traditional lawyers tend to be extremely court-focused. Um, and so there again, uh, it's extremely challenging um, to have the perspective of uh, players outside uh, the court system. Now, that is why um, it seems to me, in general, that uh, this uh, scholarship is interesting. Um, Now the content. I've I've, uh, promised uh, Mr. Chairman that I'll be very brief. Um, So what do we find inside? Uh, We have a very liberal idea of arbitration, as Jan has already pointed out, a highly liberal idea. Uh, It seems to me that um, the thread of public policy, which actually runs through the whole book and not only uh, the chapter that we're particularly uh, commenting on, um, this thread Comes up much of the book, and particularly chapter seven, is uh, elaborating on what might be called a pacified relationship between arbitration and um, public policy. Um, Now, from there, I'd like to evoke two questions, two issues, two Things that we might uh, like yep. to debate on. I don't like. I, w- I don't dare talk about ideas here. This is sub issues. Let's say. Um, how uh, how this relationship between arbitration and public policy, uh, let's say, fits into the bigger uh, systemic picture of uh, global governance. Um, so the first uh, question concerns. Um, International adjudication in general. So, uh, there are references in the book which are extremely interesting to international decision makers, international adjudicators, uh, international courts. So, there's a question of perspective here. The, The perspective of an international, whether private or public, decision maker is different in respect of public policy from that of a national or domestic. Uh, decision maker. Now, I'm just wondering about um, instances of what I'd call global chaos, global disorder in which uh, arbitration takes part. I don't say that it's causal, but I say that it takes part. For instance, take Chevron, Uh, the Chevron litigation and uh, arbitration. Um, How does this pacified relationship between uh, arbitration and public policy fit into that picture. Now, there are a certain number of international um, courts who are beginning uh, to think of their relationships with other courts in a multiple, fragmented, uh, pluralistic word, world Sorry, uh, in terms of mutual deference, overlapping consensus, margin of appreciation, subsidiarity. So my first question would be, to what extent do international arbitrators take this type of um, deference, margin, flexibility on board? Uh, I I think it seems to me that uh, when you talk about... um, the international adjudicator's attitude towards public policy, which is uh, not being embedded within it, but, t- but looking at it with a certain, um, from a certain distance, there may be an element here, uh, putting this back in a wider uh, puzzle, um, of developing a sort of external perspective uh, to what are pot- potentially very conflictual uh, questions. Is there not there a basis for something that we should be building up in the world um, in order that all these uh, various decision makers, all these systems actually uh, fit together? Uh, When I mention Chevron, it's because arbitration takes part in that uh, global disorder. But of course, it's an instance which uh, very much shows the limits of court um, adjudication um, as a as uh, an aspect of global governance. Um, The second uh, issue that I would like to talk about or like to evoke anyway, um, Jan has actually uh, very usefully given me some information about what's going on in Paris or what went on in Paris yesterday that I didn't know about. But anyway, um, I was thinking of CITEC, Thales, uh, this series of um, uh, cases which have apparently been uh, reinforced um, and I'm wondering there again about the uh, systemic role of arbitration in the lowering of uh, standards of public policy. So this is a topic that isn't necessarily contradictory, but that might be uh, with, the, with the first one. Uh, it seems to me that arbitration, um, by offering an alternative forum and an alternative system has been um, the cause of a rise of um, strategic uh, litigation. It has introduced uh, competition into what is sometimes qualified as a a global market for judicial services. It's one component of that. So competition may mean pluralism. It may mean that we've got to, there again, uh, get rid of our mental map that tends to want one right answer coming down from above. We may have to deal with uh, a plurality of uh, decisions. Um, But pluralism does actually mean more disorder. Uh, It does mean perhaps something fairly aggressive in the relationship between different fora. Um, and so there again, um, I'm just wondering how uh, this pacified relationship between arbitration and public policy fits into this more uh, competitive paradigm. So those are the two um, topics that I, seem to, uh, that I think are very, very interesting that seem to uh, emerge uh, from this particular chapter on transnational um, arbitration. I would like to open the floor to debate rather than going on uh, myself. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you for the pleasure of reading this book.
1: Thank you, Rasha. One, one point which you address, your first point, I think, uh, from my point of view and with respect, for, very interesting indeed, because as a process, uh, we who have been involved in arbitration now expect a lot of deference. But one has to, from other legal processes, um, New York Convention, all, all these reasons. But have we now reached a point where we ourselves perhaps are not paying enough deference to other legal processes, I think is the question you, 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 you may be asking. And that, it seems to me, is, is a valid question. One point which I thought uh, we might... You have many topics already that you, you may want to raise from the floor. One, one thing which really emerged perhaps from, from my perspective reading those chapters of the book is that I think in the present assembly, as, as Jan, I think, was pointing out, it's difficult to imagine anyone who would really be doubting that arbitrators should be allowed, indeed must, uh, apply the law and decide issues of public policy. And I guess one way to, uh, to, to gauge this is to try and put yourselves in uh, the shoes of perhaps, I was going to say, a developing world judge confronted with a Mitsubishi sort of issue, uh, issues which to him himself in his own legal system seem very important, and yet he's being told to have to defer to it. When I say perhaps a developing world judge, in fact, let's place ourselves in the shoes of a French or English judge 50 or 60 years ago, because that's probably where they were. And what does one tell such a judge, you know, who is used to a certain way of operating? How do we explain to him the rationale for all these very sophisticated... Uh, ideas uh, we, we are now debating. There is a lovely, lovely passage uh, at pages 214 and 215 of Jan's book. It's a bit long, so I, I won't go into it, but I urge you to read it. It's absolutely wonderful. It should be compulsory reading for every national judge before he decides an arbitration case, and it's about the reaction of a national judge when he sees an award which, to quote, he may, he may not seem much to like about and and you can see the various steps that cross his mind as to until he realizes well actually you know i'm going to stitch this one up um so so i urge you to to read that and that that is jan's answer but i wonder what your answer would be and and whether it's something uh well let, let what would you say to that uh, Jan how should a national judge from a developing world country address this issue
0: what, I, what, what comes to my mind is, um, as it happens, I wrote my doctoral thesis on arbitration in Latin America, so I'm not that far away from the question. Um, and what I've seen, when I started writing my thesis in 1998, um, no one would ever think about, let's say, antitrust issues being arbitrable. In Brazil, that was just you know, there was just a little sentence in those few books that were written, that that is impossible. And... Um, and by the, end I end, by the time I ended my thesis, which, to my shame, I have to say was six years later, um, on every Congress that I would go to, people would say, well, of course, that can be arbitrated. Why should the simple invocation of a public policy issue stalemate the entire contractual arrangement between the parties and force them to go to court? In parentheses, a Brazilian court, which the Brazilians are the first ones to speak rather badly about. Um, and what I found fascinating there, and maybe that links a little bit in with what I, what I try to, to, to convey as, as a, as a message of caution, is um, who are the people who really brought about this change and uh, the conviction of, uh, by now, I would say, most of also the judiciary in Brazil, maybe not all, but it's a big country, um, that, uh, that arbitration of these matters should be possible. It is mainly French doctoral students who came back after writing their thesis with... Um, uh, Professor Fouchard, and brought back this idea of saying, you know, arbitration is something else. We've seen it. The French have shown it to us. And um, they have managed to create such a fascination <clears throat> for it that nowadays any kind of critical arg- uh, uh, observation about that, arg- that arbitration also needs some kind of boundaries to a certain degree will be outrightly rejected as almost totalitarian attitudes. Um, so I... I when observing this very short time span i'm i'm impressed how how courts have been susceptible on the one hand to say you know we want arbitration to go forward we want uh, to accept this and um, and in the uh, in the community shaping those public opinions which is mostly uh, on the one hand scholars but also practitioners in arbitration have you know brought about also some confusion because a certain degree, some judges are so enthusiastic about arbitration that they would go very long, creating all the more backlash on the same type by the other colleagues. And um, needless to point, for example, at Sul America recently where we see it's not about public policy really, it's about just simple signature on an insurance contract but um, it shows that there is still very restrictive tendencies but these restrictive tendencies are actually reinforced by this very fact that others try to push so very much forward so I think it is in this forward backward movement that ultimately equilibrium is found and I think what Jan's merit is on this chapter is to kind of try to show how the pendulum should be somewhere in the middle with a light tendency in favor of arbitration
2: well, I who do not do my doctoral thesis on arbitration have actually no idea about it. Um, I would uh, tend to say, first of all, if, if I'm speaking to a judge from, a develop, from the developing world, I'd say, first of all, distrust any idea of arbitration that comes from the developing world and hope to publish your own. And the second, read this book. Read Jan Poulsen's book. Um you'll find a reasonable idea, I think, from a, perhaps a developing world perspective and see what you can do with it.
1: Well, I wonder. I think, I think yes, in the sense that this part of the book uh, would be a good reminder of what not to do because objectively it is what not to do. Uh, but on the other hand, I wonder whether this book or perhaps even more uh, the other book I was mentioning earlier from, uh, from um, Emmanuel Gaillard, are, would be seen by judges who are not yet used to this idea as being too, uh, as, as being uh, a glorification of a form of dispute resolution they, they don't yet understand. When you read the more extreme, some of the more liberal passages, which effectively are telling the judge, well, you know, we will try to work with you, but ultimately, if you don't cooperate, we are a process that can work without you for various theoretical reasons. I think from a... State course perspective, it's very difficult to, to accept that. And that's the reaction you see a lot in the developed world. And I think the Thales uh, case also, uh, because now, of course, compared to a French out of 60 years ago, you can see how it has evolved. So, and it may be seen as you lure them in and then you shut the door. Uh, you lure them in saying, Mitsubishi, you will have a second look. Don't worry about it. You can look at it later. And then you shut the door. Thales, but don't really look at it. So... I think that is an issue which we really need to address, and, and I quite agree that you know that a book like this in the hands of a developing world judge who has been perhaps already trained to the idea of what he might find in it uh, will work. But but we may start need to start thinking wider. Sorry, let me bring my my own perspective now. Uh, questions from you? Reactions?
3: Do you you think that public policy is reality politics? Um, The New York Convention has allowed um, globalisation and states to trade. Uh, Western worlds, it's less of an issue because there's less competition. There's a growing... (coughs) globalisation, those economies start to lose trade, do you think the politics will lessen the impact of public policy against arbitral awards because there is no judicial alternative to companies that wish to trade that way?
0: Well, I think, alluding a little bit to what Russia also said about maybe the emergence of New structures of governance that, um, through what is originally contractual arrangements, then practices, and maybe ultimately, if one were to follow Emmanuel Gaillard on his idea of an arbitral legal order, we would see something emerging not only in terms of dispute resolution but actually norm setting. I think that is, I think, the fundamental difference between Jan Paulson's book and, and Emmanuel Gaillard's is that. Um, whereas uh, as the title in French, at least, uh, uh, as it suggests that it is very um, about um, philosophical aspects, he he lifts off quite far. And, for example, on the topic of um, mandatory rules, mandatory rules, especially international mandatory rules, are those which which states have um, legislated and representing such a strong public policy that they think that it doesn't matter whether the contract is actually linked or has an international dimension, we want to impose our solution, period. Um, That actually what one could say is, well, it is a conflict of laws problem to find out who has actually the power to regulate this issue, and the arbitrator is the one who observes that. And I think the rules that uh, Jan kind of gives us or the, the, the ideas that he works out in that respect is to say the arbitrator can observe this, he should observe this, he should make sure that his award is enforceable, he should really resolve the dispute, and um, he is the adjudicator. Whereas if you look into Emmanuel Gallin's book, it goes very far. He clearly states that internationally mandatory rules should not be applied by arbitrators, and the reasoning he gives is we don't need it, because internationally mandatory rules are nothing but an expression of a public policy, and what we're seeing is the emergence of a global transnational, truly international public policy in which arbitrators, through their awards, case law, develop ideas about what is exactly corruption, what is exactly the pari passu principle, what exactly are a number of other issues which have been grappled with in national jurisdictions but are not uniform, the arbitrator will ultimately distill global rules from that. And if you really think about that proposal... That is in line also what <laughs> Salim just said about scaring people. Um, you know, that is arrogating oneself or arrogating as an arbitrator the power not only to adjudication but to rule setting, to become the rule maker of a globalized economy where we lack a global regulator. So is arbitration really that? And I think that is where um, I am very much with Jan uh, on the, I would say, more territorialistic side or at least the um, pluralist side that um, we must live with confusion. We cannot let arbitrators make policies. We want them to resolve the disputes between the parties and to be conscious of their responsibility um, in contributing to some type of regulatory function in terms of keeping people to their promises and making sure that things work, that the economy does work, but not into going to definitions of what the public interest in general is, especially at a global level.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, I think the assumption in your question is that it's difficult to leave the real politics uh, behind, right? I think that uh, um, we may be doing Parisian poetry here uh, to a certain extent. Um, nevertheless, it's an effort that's worthwhile keeping up. I think that um, uh, Jan has very much answered um, your question, um, I think that uh, arbitration now is part of the global governance scene, let's say, and that um, I think it's very, very important to, to try and work out how all this can fit together. Uh, but to a large extent, it's very, very difficult um, to, 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 to talk about arbitration in the air without talking about global trade um, and uh, the questions of great inequalities in po- of, of power and uh, uh, economics. Um, but the, the effort is worthwhile. Otherwise, I don't think, as lawyers, we'd be here. I think.
1: Thank you very much. This brings us to the end of, of our panel. So, as you can see, this book now you, you can understand as a postmodern response to a Nietzschean vision of super arbitrators which may have been formulated erroneously by others. <laughs> so thank you very much, and we'll now move to, to the next panel. <laughs>
5: You. No, I'm, I'll introduce you of course.
6: Hmm.
5: <laughs> Was the hotel okay? Oh, I <laughs> think that's fine. Sure. Do we have to these switched on? So I don't need to do anything. Hello. Perfect. A <laughs> I think we can. can we <clears throat> <guess> so. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the second debate. Uh, I think I speak for all the speakers on tonight's panel when I say that we are all um, very pleased to be participating in discussing a book that I think is destined to be um, a a classic in the field of arbitration. If I was a competitive soul, I would say our panel would be the best of them all. Um, (laughs) But that would not be fair or correct, and I thank Salim for setting out and making my job easier, giving an overview of the book, its ambition. Perhaps one thing it is important to say with the words Nietzsche and other philosophers mentioned, that it's not just an upward-looking account. It's an account, I'm sure when you read it, that seeks to provide some guidance to the practitioner. It speaks to a whole audience of students, practitioners, and academics, and I think that pretty much embodies Jan's career and aspiration as a writer as well. Um, The question that this second panel deals with strikes at the very heart of the arbitral process and constitutes chapter three of Jan's book. Let me repeat it, it's jurisdictional contests, who decides them, when, and in what degree of finality. Now, how one approaches these questions may differ depending on whether you are a lawyer trained in the common law or civil law systems. Indeed, Jan's discussion, and this is another feature of his book, uh, is informed by the different ways in which the major civil law and common law nations have dealt with these questions about jurisdictional contests. We are therefore very pleased that um, the two speakers tonight um, represent each of the two legal systems Let me introduce them. To my left, I have uh, Dr. Charles Ponce. Charles is a partner at CMS Von Erleck Ponce, which grew out of a merger of two firms, one of which he founded. He is a leading international arbitration expert from Switzerland. Charles has been active in international arbitration for over 20 years, initially as secretary of several international arbitral tribunals and subsequently as arbitrator, chairman or counsel. He appeared in several leading uh, cases concerning large-scale investments, joint ventures, and other disputes, often involving amounts in dispute approaching or in excess of one billion U.S. dollars. Like many, a good lawyer. um, His first degree was in classics. He then completed his legal education at the University of Geneva Law School in Georgetown Law, and he obtained his Ph.D. from the former. Now, among his publications and activities includes directing the work of the website Swiss International Arbitration Decisions, which provides English translations of the opinions issued by the Federal Tribunal, the Supreme Court of Switzerland, in the field of international arbitration since 2008. Um, I also thank him for traveling to be here with us um, tonight, and I'm very grateful. We are all very grateful for that. To my right is Sir Bernard Briggs, um who will kick off the discussion tonight and get starting with a brief overview of Chapter 3. Bernard is a leading arbitrator and mediator from 20 Essex Street. For over 20 years, um, he sat as a judge in the Commercial Court, in the Court of Appeal, from which he recently retired. Prior to becoming a judge, he was one of England's leading barristers, specializing in international commercial and arbitral disputes. Indeed, he took silk in 11 years, um, uh, which seems like pretty much a record. But both as counsel and then judge, he has been involved in some of the most important cases involving questions of general commercial law and practice and arbitration. To give a few highlights, he was a case, um, uh, he was a, he was a, as counsel, he was involved in the case that was the origin of the Mareva injunction, now called the Freezing Order. At the Commercial Court, as a judge, he delivered the judgment in the Angelic Grace, which is um, the modern origin of the anti-suit injunction for breach of an arbitration clause or an exclusive jurisdiction clause. And in the Court of Appeal, he delivered a significant judgment in Dalla in Pakistan, um, a case on the enforcement of arbitration awards. In addition to his arbitrator and mediator work, Bernard was also recently appointed as a professor of international commercial law at Queen Mary, University of London. Now, before I hand over the mic to Bernard, I should add that as soon as the invites um, for tonight's event went out, a prominent lawyer emailed me to wish me good luck in moderating Bernard. I was warned that Bernard is very charming but devastating. <laughs> so with that warm warning firmly in mind, <laughs> let me vacate the stage for Bernard. Thank you very much
7: indeed, uh, Jan. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's most kind of those who've organized this evening to have asked me to participate in it. And I thank them for the invitation. And I thank you, the audience, for the patience which I hope you'll be- bestow on my effort. And may I say, Charles, from one classicist to another. <laughs> thank you. So, to work uh, jurisdictional contests, who decides them? when and with what degree of finality. In, uh, let me say at once, the masterful third chapter of his new book, Jan rightly says that the proposition that, quote, arbitrators may provisionally determine their own jurisdiction is by and large a settled matter. The difficulty is the timing of any judicial review. And subsequently... He puts forward what he describes as an, quote, overarching presumption intended to solve most problems associated with the who and when issues, end quote. That overarching presumption, you'll find it at page 81, turns out to be a carefully crafted paragraph which will repay more study than this session can unfortunately give it. I'm here... Tonight, however, as a debater in a university, and as such, I think of my role to be half that of persuader and half that of controversialist. In that vein, I would pay a sincere tribute to Jan's exegesis of the theory of competence-competence and the remaining issues which surround it. Jan's account of this subject is, let me say, the finest I have read, but may I cautiously suggest that his overarching presumption turns out to be three presumptions, none of which are overarching, and all of which are carefully, and no doubt advisedly, couched about with provisos and qualifications, Shorn of those qualifications, the three presumptions in my gloss of them are these. One, the courts should presume that the parties to an arbitration agreement intend that a properly constituted arbitration tribunal should be the first to decide, my gloss, what are sometimes called jurisdictional issues. <coughs> Two. Two. The arbitrator's decisions as to issues of scope and timeliness of arbitrable claims should be presumed to be final and judicial review should therefore be curtailed by that presumption. Three, where judicial review survives, it may be plenary, by which I understand Yun to mean a full and independent review determined by its own evidence. May I ask you to note that the first presumption is a presumption of law in the sense that it is a presumption about the interpretation of the party's intentions. It is no doubt, therefore, subject to contrary agreement. It is in that sense, I think, that Jan calls it a presumption. The second presumption is possibly of the same kind, but perhaps not so clearly so. And the third presumption is, I think, a presumption about the procedural law or case management of the courts of the forum. As a presumption only, it seems, therefore, that it might be subject to arguments of discretion, but I'm not sure. I'd like to suggest that what we find here are perfectly sensible suggestions but that there remains a possibility of confusion between matters of principle, policy, presumption, and pragmatism, which ought to be understood for what they are. And I'd also like to suggest, being the English common lawyer that I am, but one I hope that is well alive to the virtues of the civil law, that the matter of pragmatism is as important as any of the others. Uh, I take... Uh, Salim's point from earlier this evening uh, that the English that English lawyers are pragmatists only they cannot theorize they know little about principle Um, we won't debate that at the moment this English lawyer or Anglo-Saxon lawyer as the French like to call us no no, the Swiss don't. But not, but not the Swiss, <laughs> I'll say. it. <laughs> nevertheless, comes from the continental part. I mean, my background is very much from the continental part of the continent of Europe, rather than from the islands of Europe. Anyway, principle, policy, presumption, and pragmatism. Let me attempt to define my terms. Well aware that the law, that in the law, everything is either on one or other side of a line and at the same time part of a seamless web. By principle, I mean those basic rules of substantive law, which of course include contract law or arbitration law, which are the building blocks with which any nation's courts work in order to solve an issue brought before them. They may, of course, differ from one nation to another, but hopefully they coalesce. Relevant examples are interpretation of contracts is concerned with the intention of the parties. Would-be agreements, which have never been finalized as contracts, are ineffective, for they have never come into existence. Contracts which have come into existence may be subject to vices, such as fraud or misrepresentation and the like, ...which entitle a contract party to rescind the contract. In other words, existent contracts may be voidable and be rescinded. And, specifically in arbitration law, one might speak, as matters of principle... ...of the interpretative presumptions that an arbitration agreement is intended to survive the termination of the substantive underlying contract and that, I suppose, is at the root of the doctrine of severability, or that the parties intend, as far as possible, that their disputes should be resolved by their chosen arbitrators in one forum, rather than divided between their chosen tribunal and the national courts, which they have been seeking to avoid by the very means of agreeing to arbitrate. And these are all examples of principles of substantive law with which we are very familiar. By policy, I mean those ideas concerning arbitration, which for reasons of good sense and rationality, we can debate that, of course, derived from the nature of international business transactions, have commended themselves to the nations of the world and, indeed, to the United Nations of this world. See, for instance, the UNCITRAL Model Law. Relevant policies, in this sense, might be said to be, for instance, that arbitration is a good thing and to be encouraged, rather than feared and discouraged, and that policy has been gaining ground for more than 100 years, but it was not always regarded as it is today, and today in the globalizing world there is a new issue as to whether arbitration as a good thing is a policy of the developed world, and is not in the interests of the developing world. Or the policy that as far as possible, the autonomy of the parties in matters of arbitration is to be respected. And to come to the very matter which we are now debating, that these pro-arbitration and pro-autonomy policies, having been established, it's a good idea not only to allow, but even to encourage, the party's chosen arbitral tribunal to determine its own jurisdiction when issues arise or are said to arise concerning it. And that policy, which is enshrined in the model law and in the arbitration statutes of many nations, including that of Britain and France, and I assume Switzerland as well, Charles, uh, may have almost reached the status of a principle, But I would prefer to see it as a policy which says, in effect, there is a presumption uh, that the arbitrators go first. Their decision, after all, may never be questioned. The arbitration need not be derailed from the very beginning. A tribunal which, if it has jurisdiction, can look at every aspect of the party's dispute, facts, merits, and so forth, is a good place to start. There is time enough when the issue has been teased out by an arbitral decision to decide if the issue is such that only a court can bring a determinative and conclusive voice to it because the issue turns out to be such that the arbitrator's views cannot be determinative. Now, we are familiar with two at least entirely typical kinds of such jurisdictional issues. If there is an issue as to whether the parties ever made any contract at all, the arbitrators who have no status if there was never any contract cannot obviously conclusively decide the issue of whether there was a contract. If there wasn't a contract, no one has ever appointed them As arbitrators, no one has ever agreed to appoint them as arbitrators to determine the party's dispute. Similarly, if there is an issue as to whether an arbitrator was properly appointed, a tribunal including that arbitrator cannot conclusively determine such an issue. Turning to presumption. By presumption, I mean that on a given state of facts... Something else, prima facie, follows unless something different is shown. Presumptions may arise in the context of principles or policies. Presumptions reflect the nature of what is taken to be normality, but allow for exceptions. It is now accepted that there is what has been called a presumption that parties making arbitration agreements are to be reasonably understood as intending that issues about the continued validity of a contract once made are issues for the arbitrators, not the courts, Fiona Trust, per Lord Hoffman. Of course, one can say so expressly in one's arbitration clause, but it is not necessary. Or one can contradict the presumption by the arbitration agreement's express language, in which case the presumption is rebutted but such detailed clauses are extremely rare, which underlines the virtue of the presumption. Now, it may be observed that questions of the illegality of contracts, which the previous panel have been discussing under the heading of public policy, uh, lie tantalizingly across the boundaries of these principles, policies, and presumptions. In English law and the position may be different in other laws, an illegal contract is void. Not voidable, but void. So it never got going at all. However, it has to be said that the English law of illegality is a mess. I don't know how things are in Switzerland, Charles. You can
8: safely assume the same.
7: (laughs) Nevertheless, if an issue of illegality arises in connection with a contract with an arbitration clause have the parties agreed that the arbitrator should decide such issues when ex-hypothesis if the contract is illegal it's a void contract it's not obvious although it's possible that the doctrine of severability nevertheless preserves the arbitration agreement Ultimately, it must be a matter of interpretation of that arbitration agreement. Given the frequency with which in international arbitration an alleged illegality is a matter of foreign law, that is to say, law foreign both to the proper law of the underlying contract and the law of the place of arbitration or the curial law, I would see the factual aspects of such issues as such that the parties are to be reasonably regarded as intending the arbitrators to have dominion over them and thus the issue of illegality itself. Of course, on enforcement, as Jan points out in his overarching presumption paragraph, the court of the country of enforcement is always entitled to consider the public policy aspects of an issue of illegality. And then... As an English lawyer, with relief, one comes to pragmatism, and this I would define as covering the procedural workings out of these principles, policies, and presumptions, but also as covering the room for maneuver within them. Pragmatism is, of course, an exercise in rationality all by itself, working from the building blocks of these principles, policies, and presumptions. And I would like to make a determined plea in favor of pragmatism. Some examples. Example one. There is a policy in favor of arbitrators being allowed to decide their jurisdiction first. The policy is framed in terms of a presumption, i.e. it is not a hard and fast principle. What exceptions do you favor and why? In English law, the parties may agree to go to the court first. Why not? Pragmatism favors the autonomy of the parties. Or the arbitrators, in their wisdom, think that the issue should go to the court first, and the judge is persuaded that that makes good sense. Then why not? the arbitrators should not have to do what they think can best be handled in another way. But what if the parties don't agree and the arbitrators don't say that the matter should go to the court first? And so it is one party which applies to the court to go first, and that is opposed. The applicant party says that there is a real issue as to whether a contract has ever been made between him and the other party and says that there is no contract which binds him. He says that the issue will have to come to the court sooner or later and therefore it is better to come to the court sooner and the issue will be decided there with greater efficiency and less expense in time and money. Such an application may arise whether or not an arbitration has been started. In one situation, an arbitration has been started against a respondent who says that he's not a party to any contract. In another case, a party sues in court, possibly for a negative declaration, and the defendant asks for a stay for arbitration, says we've got an arbitration agreement. The court has to be able, in such a situation, to make its own judgment as to the most sensible way of proceeding, even if it does so from the starting point, which says that there's a presumption for letting the arbitrators go first. The rule in France, as I understand, (coughs) is that the matter has to go to the arbitrators first unless the case for arbitration is manifestly bad. I do not think that Young favours that rule. Perhaps the pragmatic view is that there may be a good reason For the court deciding such a basic issue first, if there is a sufficiently good argument in favor of proceeding in that way, what you might call a good arguable case for doing so. Example two, a foreign court in the country of one of the parties to the contract has said that the contract's English arbitration clause is illegal under the law of that foreign country. There is no current dispute between the parties, an earlier dispute having been settled, but the party who contends that the arbitration clause is valid and not illegal is anxious to establish that fact in case it faces fresh litigation in the foreign court in the future, which, of course, it doesn't want to have to undergo. So it brings proceedings in the English courts to establish the legality and effectiveness of the arbitration clause. The respondent says that it cannot do so, but has to start an arbitration in order to put before the arbitrators, none of whom have been appointed yet, the issue of their own jurisdiction. Does it have to? Or can the English court decide the issue for itself? A pragmatic answer suggests that it can, And that such an efficient proceeding is in support of arbitration. Example three An issue of whether there ever was a contract between the parties has been debated at arbitration over many days. Real example. Expert opinion on foreign law and further expert opinion on the nature of the industry in question has been given. Four experts, much expense the arbitrators have given their decision one way or the other. That decision is disputed by the losing party and taken to court. It can't be barred from the court. The issue is whether there ever was a contract between the parties. Now, in court, the issue is whether the court will only interfere if it is persuaded that the arbitrators must have got it wrong, or whether it will make up its own mind about the facts with newly presented evidence and expert opinion evidence, or whether it is only in the position of an appellate reviewing court, even one with ultimate power, but also such a court's reluctance to interfere on the courts. As an English appellate court says, we're not going to go into the facts unless we're really persuaded that the trial court has got the facts wrong. Now, pragmatism here possibly pushes in both directions, The expense of a fresh trial of the issue in the courts after the lengthy hearing in arbitration is significant. On the other hand, how else can the court fairly decide the issue without hearing the evidence for itself? I would suggest that the pragmatic and principled answer is that the court has to decide for itself. It may or it may not be influenced by the value of the arbitrator's award, but since there may never have been an arbitration agreement, the court has got to make up its own mind and have the, its own means of doing so. Example four, my last. There is an issue as to the scope of an arbitration clause. Does it cover the dispute in question? That was the issue in the angelic grace underlying the anti-suit sir, question. Perhaps such issues will be rarer in the light of the subsequent decision of the House of Lords in Fiona Trust, but experience has shown that such questions have not disappeared. The issue is decided first by the arbitrators in favor of the dispute being within the scope of the clause. Is there a challenge on jurisdiction to the courts? It used to be thought in England that there was because it raised a question as to the jurisdiction of the arbitrators. But perhaps the only question raised is as to the meaning and application of the arbitration clause itself. And why should the arbitrators not be in a position to decide that for themselves, just as they can decide whether the underlying contract has been avoided for misrepresentation, and just as they can decide any question of interpretation under the contract? Is it because any question of interpretation of the severable arbitration agreement cannot be conclusively conclusively determined by the arbitrators? That, at any rate, appears to be the English view for Section 30, subsection 1 of the Arbitration Act 1996, defines issues as to substantive jurisdiction which can be carried to the court as including, quote, what matters have been submitted to arbitration in accordance with the arbitration agreement. So that question in English law has been decided by statutory provision. However, as to the principle of the question, I've not made up my mind whether it is really a matter of principle, good or bad, or policy, good or bad, or pragmatism. I'm speaking of the rule in the the statute. But I'm inclined to question why a properly constituted arbitration tribunal, under an arbitration agreement which no one disputes as having been agreed, cannot provide a conclusive answer subject only to any permissible appeal on the scope of that agreement. Now, I mean, that's wrong in English law as long as the statute remains as it is, but that's my answer in principle. Now, this is the subject matter of Young's second presumption, uh, which is to the effect that the arbitrator's decision is final. I'm not sure what kind of presumption it is, but perhaps it's an interpretative one. In England, it's excluded by the terms of the statute, but I think it is sound to see such issues as being determined by the party's contract and thus to be for the arbitrator's conclusive determination. And so what, finally, of Jan's first and third presumptions? The first, let the tribunal go first, makes sense to me, but I make a strong plea in favor of pragmatism here. His third is that judicial review is plenary. I agree. But that is a good reason why one should be pragmatic about going to f- the courts first time round in a suitable case. Thank you very much.
8: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I think I am beginning to understand the wisdom of uh, Tariq's admonition that Sir Bernard Riggs' presentation of any argument can be so devastating that it leaves the other party um, practically in a situation where it's impossible to disagree. Uh, I will try to do that nonetheless, at least in part and I'll uh, try to illustrate in a few minutes the attitude um, of continental law, generally speaking, that, that mm, could be simplified as simply saying non-English, non-American approach to this uh, issue, and with your permission, I will uh, limit myself mostly to the area in which I am the least ignorant, which is the law of Switzerland, a, a place that is fairly important in international arbitrations, as you know. And with regard to the first uh, point made by uh, Sir Bernard a, a, a minute ago... There is no room for pragmatism on the continent, basically, uh, pragmatism of the kind you outlined, when it comes to the first leg of competence, competence. I don't know if it is a mixture of the Gallic tendency to build Cartesian systems and the Germanic obsession with Systematische but but we do have Competence, 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 considered positively and considered negatively, which is a typical German approach. The competence, the positive aspect of competence, competence, of course, is that it is for the arbitrator's period to determine if they have jurisdiction. The law, Article 186 of the, of the Swiss uh, law, says the arbitral tribunal shall itself decide on jurisdiction – And as you mentioned, Bernard, even if the the parties agreed that this would somehow not be left to the wisdom of three arbitrators who may get it right or wrong, and if the parties agreed to go to court, they couldn't. Because it requires, first, a decision by the arbitral tribunal on its jurisdiction to be able to trigger a process of judicial review. Whether that's pragmatic or not, we can debate, uh, uh, we can debate, of course, but that's the way it is. I would like to interject a word of caution, which is that we are dealing with a very different animal, I think, from what could be, uh, uh, one could be faced with in, in London, because you are dealing with a legal system in which the alternative between arbitral jurisdiction or state court jurisdiction is a very, is almost exceptional. Switzerland uh, hosts about 15 or 20 percent of all ICC arbitrations. The venue is in Switzerland and you'll find only a tiny minority, uh, just a few of these cases, which uh, uh, would provide for the Swiss courts to have jurisdiction as an alternative, basically under the Lugano Convention and so on, it would mean that one of the parties would have to be Swiss-based and it would have to be the respondent. Otherwise, there is no jurisdiction. Since that happens very, very seldom in Lied, it's easy for the Swiss courts to be wise, and we will see in a minute that there are areas in which they're not wise at all, at least in this, in this speaker's view. So the presumption is totally, totally in favor of the arbitral tribunal. Is there a claim that the, is there a contention that there is no arbitration agreement, that uh, whoever signed the agreement uh, had no authority to do so, as, uh, as Jan mentions in his, uh, in his chapter three? Well, this will have to be decided by the arbitrators, the difference, if there is a difference, is that not only is there a possibility to take this decision of the arbitrators on jurisdiction to court, there is a duty to do so immediately. In fact, there is a particularly bizarre decision of the, the Swiss uh, Federal Tribunal, which is Switzerland's Supreme Court, which says that if you have an innocuous, an innocuous procedural. Order, which in fact contains a determination on jurisdiction, well, technically speaking, that is an award on jurisdiction. If you don't appeal it within 30 days, you've forfeited your right to appeal. So it goes very far, uh, it goes very far indeed. The judicial review is then exercised by the Supreme Court on the basis of exchanges of briefs, no oral arguments, something that I found despicable, but that's a matter of opinion. And uh, the court exercises its review freely on jurisdictional issues, but not on the factual findings. The court is bound by the factual findings of the arbitrators unless a specific uh, admissible grievance is raised in the appeal proceedings. In other words, once you have arbitrators sitting in Switzerland who have determined that they have jurisdiction, it will take some serious mistake for the court to rectify this. It happens. In particular, it happened several times in the field of sport arbitration. So, so much, so much for the positive aspect of uh, competence, competence. Now, we come to the negative aspect. In other words, the issue as to whether or not a court, which is seized, should open the contract, see Article 33 containing an arbitration clause, and say, stop, I shall go no further. Go to the arbitrators and decide, and, and, and argue your case there. That is the approach of the French system, which has embodied the negative aspect of competence, competence. It is being considered in Switzerland, it may or may not become, uh, become law, It is different from an issue of lispendence, of course, because you can have arbitrators being... Indeed, this uh, gave rise to a famous decision in the Fomento case, where you had uh, an arbitral tribunal sitting in Switzerland was seized, and there was a, um, a court in Panama which had been seized first, therefore applying the normal rule of of lis pendens, prior temporis potior juris meant that the arbitrators had to stay the arbitration. They refused to do so. The Supreme Court overturned, and admittedly, since I was not entirely alien to the process, I have to recognize that out of protectionist grounds we just changed the law. And now, arbitrators sitting in Switzerland no longer have to bother about the existence of... uh, court proceedings or other arbitral proceedings abroad, uh, they can decide in their own wisdom whether or not they wish to stay the proceedings, and they can go ahead if they wish to. Having said that, the negative aspect of competence-competence will raise the very delicate issue of what kind of test should a court perform. We are in, the, in a case in which the defendant, the respondent, is subject to Swiss state jurisdiction, there is an arbitration clause, and a case starts in, in Geneva. For instance, let me give you an example, Compagnie Mediterranean de Shipping. Uh, there was a, a dispute between a French and a Swiss company, but in the process, there was a charter party providing for arbitration in London. The Geneva Court of First Instance found that the arbitration clause was invalid, the Court of Appeals disagreed, and the Federal Tribunal Upheld the Court of Appeal, therefore, the parties had to go to arbitration. The problem is nobody knows exactly what kind of test should be performed to reach that conclusion. And there, probably, we are fairly close to one of the examples that that Sir Bernard uh, mentioned before. Some writers think that the court should look at the substance of the arbitration clause, really perform a thorough judicial review, hear witnesses if necessary, and then decide whether or not there is arbitration. That is very far from the French approach, which unless it's blatantly, the arbitration clause is blatantly uh, void, the court will s- decline jurisdiction and go uh, re- send the parties to, to arbitration. Uh, If you have to decide under a New York Convention sort of test whether an arbitration clause is inoperative or incapable of being performed, to use the classic language, the question is how far, how thoroughly do you investigate the matter? And there, the Swiss uh, approach is to say that it depends. It depends on whether the competing, quote-unquote, arbitral tribunal sits in Switzerland or sits abroad. And before everybody jumps from their seats, I will concede that in the global world of today, claiming that uh, the the test a court performs on an arbitration, the validity of an arbitration clause should be different depending on whether the arbitral tribunal sits in your own country or in another one (laughs) verges on lunacy. I will grant that. But The court's justification is to say that, of course, if the arbitrators sit in Switzerland, then there is an immediate appeal, whilst if the arbitration is abroad, it's only at the end of the process through the enforcement under the New York Convention that the the issue of the jurisdiction can be dealt with, whether... uh, this is a good thing or not, and I don't think it is a good thing, because in in the world of today, it is obviously an untenable proposition in, in, in my view, the test remains a very limited test, and it's only a superficial review of the validity of the arbitration clause, which again leaves no room for pragmatism, because the court has to simply look at the the arbitration clause fairly superficially, some writers disagree, and then send the parties back to arbitration. One last point to confuse the issues a little more, Sir Bernard mentioned the issue of uh, scope, um, uh, scope, and the issues, those threshold issues, which may or may not be jurisdictional, and I'd just like to give an example of a case in which Something that is apparently not jurisdictional can, be, can very quickly become jurisdictional. Polish law has, or at least had, a provision that makes arbitration impossible if a company is bankrupt. In other words, a Polish company that signs an arbitration agreement can no longer submit itself to arbitration uh, if it goes bankrupt. Is that an issue of jurisdiction or not on its face, it is not, because the issue is whether X company from Warsaw can be properly made a respondent in the case. However, the Swiss answer would be to say, well, if one recognizes that Polish law applies to this particular issue, then arbitration is impossible, therefore the arbitrators lose jurisdiction. This was a fairly famous case which caused my friend Pierre Carrere to write an article saying the Swiss Supreme Court got it wrong, wrong, wrong and wrong again on this particular issue which was corrected later. But it's a good example of a number of issues which can very quickly, very quickly bring one into the realm of jurisdiction when in fact you could be inclined to think that you're dealing with a very preliminary issue or with a threshold issue as they are uh, called. I think I've said enough. Um, I would just like to add one very quick, uh, very quick thing in favor of Parisian poetry as uh, Jan puts it. I think the French approach of the negative competence, competence is better and frankly, for a French-speaking Swiss to say that the French got it right takes an effort, I, I have to tell you. But they did get it right on this, in this particular uh, area because, admittedly, it can have absurd results. The classical example is if you have negative competence, competence, you happen to be a claimant, you want to go to court, you go to some court which will reject Its jurisdiction on a very prima facie review. Then you have to start an arbitration, asking as a claimant the arbitrators to deny jurisdiction, which is indeed a bit of a paradox. But on average and in uh, uh, overall, I think it's a better approach because it prevents. um, How should I put it? uh, um, Delicately. it it prevents the difficulties that can be created by the fact that not all courts are like the English courts or the Swiss counterparts. And you can have, and and we've all seen, countless cases in which the possibility to seize a court in the absence of a negative competence. competence is really used to derail the arbitration. There are various names for these kind of torpedoes, as they are called. And I put it to you that overall, even with the difficulties that can arise in this beautiful Gallic, uh, Gaillard-inspired construction, overall the system is better than the pragmatism previously advocated, which will work fine if we're in London, perhaps in, in Lausanne, but not necessarily everywhere. Thank you for your attention.
5: Thank you. Thank you both. Um, I think, given the time, it will be useful to open, open the floor to questions. Um, I'd be grateful if you could speak loudly and perhaps tell us your affiliation. Uh, please, the gentleman in the gallery. Yes, you. Um, I don't have a mic, so I'll have to... Speak up? Speak loud. Yes. Um, thank you very much.
9: confidently and safely agree on existence of the arbitration agreement, validity of the arbitration agreement, undoubtedly questions of jurisdiction preconditions to arbitration BG Group v Argentina we can debate <laughs> for quite a while and then the question of scope so first question is whether there is something we can, 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 can be confident about in terms of what is a question of jurisdiction and second whether you think there must be um, a variation in the degree of deference depending on what question of jurisdiction is before the court to review? Thank you. Uh,
7: very, good, very good question. Um, it's not an easy question to answer. I'm not going to try and answer it. I mean, one can, one can, one can say that... Uh, Issues as to whether a contract was ever made is, is a question of jurisdiction. An issue is as, as to whether uh, a, a, an arbitrator has been properly appointed, that must be a question of jurisdiction. Um, I've already given my opinion that issues as to the scope of an arbitration clause uh, should not be regarded as, as uh, a question of jurisdiction, but English law does regard it as a question of jurisdiction. Jan uh, is forthright in Chapter 3 in pointing out that questions of limitation of time is a question on the merits and is not a question of jurisdiction. I absolutely agree about that, Uh, although I suppose it may depend in part both on uh, national law and also on the particular way in which a, a clause is drafted Um, English law is that limitation does not remove the the cause of action. It is simply a defense to a cause of action. And if the defense is not taken, the point isn't there. So it's plainly, in English law, a matter of merits. It's a defense on the merits. It isn't a matter of jurisdiction. On the other hand, it may be that in other countries, limitation has some different theoretical basis, and I suppose it's also possible to, to draft a clause which may make uh, the whole uh, possibility of starting an arbitration de- dependent upon uh, something being done in, in time. So uh, one gets towards a question of jurisdiction.
8: Uh, Jan refers in his book in Chapter 3 to a case called Vekoma, V-E-K-O-M-A a Swiss case in which there was indeed a time limit within which arbitral proceedings had to be initiated, and then there was an issue as to uh, whether, you know, from, at what point in time did that time limit start to run? Was it from the very beginning, or was it from, there there was a good faith issue. The arbitrators found that the time limit had not run out, The, the, the Federal Tribunal reversed and said that it was an issue of jurisdiction, something that I frankly, uh, Jan doesn't uh, express a view as to whether or not it was wrong. I, I don't think that's right, by the way, but it was perceived as being an issue of uh, of jurisdiction just as uh, an issue of succession, assignment of an arbitration clause, the presence of a guarantor, all that sort of things would fall, I guess, from a non uh, from a non-common law perspective, would all fall within jurisdiction. I'm not sure if this would be the same uh, problem. Just to,
5: I think if Jan was to speak, he would cite page 90, where he sets out a general approach in trying to approach what is a question of jurisdiction and admissibility. But one of the questions I had for you, Bernard, was I think generally Jan's approach is when it comes to preconditions, they, generally speaking, should be treated as questions of admissibility. Of course, exhaustion of remedy-type preconditions may be seen as more jurisdictional. I think there is, there is some disconnect there between how English law would approach that question and what Jan is suggesting. But if I understand you correctly, you would say that Jan's approach is I'm, the model one. I'm <laughs>
7: moving in, in Jan's direction, yes.
3: Okay. <laughs> um, can I... Any other questions? I think there was some... The gentleman with the um, mic. Solomon really? Ahmed. My affiliation is with the London School of Economics. Um, I just wanted to pick up a point uh, Sir Barnard made at the very beginning of his talk, um, in which his lordship suggested that arbitration is a product of the developed world. Um, so far as I know, and if my memory serves me correctly, arbitration has been around since Noah left the ark. And I don't mean that in the proverbial sense, but perhaps in the uh, literary sense of the phrase. Um, and thereafter, uh, at least since the inception of the jewish faith hence we hence the reason we have the bet Din and the jewish court and in afghanistan it's been around since the beginning of the Ghaznavid empire and even to this very day in the on the indian subcontinent at least it's very prevalent even in the villages from the village panchayats as they call it in india um, at the most basic level um, whether of course. Even uh, the constitution of those tribunals or the arbiters is legal or not is a wholly different matter, and the the sort of uh, sentences they uh, proclaim are, are are a sort of a can of worms in itself so um, would your Lordship then agree that in fact firstly that arbitration is borrowed from the Less developed world, shall we say, uh, and, it, and it was, it's been uh, borrowed from there and developed and, into the wonderful creature that we now uh, try to sell it as. And if that is the case, then how, uh, what recommendations would you have uh, for those developing countries? Uh,
7: you're quite right. Arbitration is as old as uh, human existence. Um, and the great expert on the history of arbitration is sitting here in the second row, Professor Derek Roebuck. And so if you've got a question, you should be at him. Uh, but, you're, but you're quite right. But I'm thinking of modern international commercial arbitration, which I think is, is very much the product of uh, the modern so-called West, Western world. Uh, I once heard Lord Bingham describe uh, the earliest recorded well-known arbitration as being the um, judgment of Solomon about uh, the baby, <laughs> Um, I was puzzled. Um, I mean, I've, I've never questioned anything that Lord Bingham has ever said, but, but I, was, I was puzzled by that, because, uh, as we know, uh, arbitrators arbitrate, but kings judge.:
5: Are there any further questions from the floor?: Let me then end by asking one question me. Let me just end, perhaps putting you on the spot, both of you. As I understood you correctly, um, pragmatism has a very important role to play on, on this very question. So perhaps it's a methodological question, but do you think that overarching presumptions of the type that Jan has in this chapter can play a useful role because they're never going to capture the kind of guidance that's required for pra- to put pragmatism in, in action? Or do you think you would change the uh, overarching presumption in a certain way to capture that aspect that you think perhaps was not there?
10: Um,
7: Well, I I think uh, that what I was saying in so many words was that um, presumptions are not overarching, uh, that they are, uh, as it were, the lifeblood of pragmatism, because that's what one means by a presumption. It is something which normally happens but exceptionally doesn't. uh, And that therefore... One needs to do a bit of teasing out of uh, Jan's overarching presumption because uh, it's a bit of a, dare I say this, Jan? Oxymoron, an overarching presumption. Um, But uh, as you heard me say, I mean, I very much like the sounds of, of Jan's presumptions, and they seem to me to be fundamentally sound.
8: I wholeheartedly agree with that. I would add a word of caution, which is that with the multiplication of rules of all sorts, and also, let's face it, a certain reaction against arbitration, which you can see at various political levels. The French uh, tapis case is a good example. Uh, Pragmatism, as advocated by Jan as desirable as it is, may become, to put it in Shakespearean terms, uh, a custom more observed in the breach than the the observance. So um, let's be careful about that.
5: Thank you. I think um, I'll bring this panel to a close, and I would ask you to appreciate the speakers in the usual way. Thank you.
4: Great. Let me welcome you all to the third and final panel. My name is Catherine Rogers. I, I think I am the only Yankee who was permitted in this debate between continent and, uh, and England, although I knew, now do also teach at Queen Mary, which I suppose um, allows me to crash this party. Uh, instead of the sort of stilted silhouettes that we get when uh, an introducer recites the illustrious credentials of speakers... I'm going to try to tell you a little bit more about who these men sitting on either side of me are, uh, engaging in a little uh, perhaps audacious allegory. So to my left, uh, Derek Roebuck, I'm going to call an archaeologist of history. So a real archaeologist digs around in the dirt and finds lost relics and treasures, and then they shake them off and they put them in a nice glass case in a museum, for us all to admire in uh, splendid isolation. Instead, what Derek does is he takes what are seemingly old relics and he weaves them into these wonderful stories about arbitration. And through these tales of history that he's uncovered, he, he provides a new light uh, through history of uh, even on modern concepts and debates. And I think that's what we are in for this evening. To my right, and I hope you'll forgive me for this. Uh, I'm going to call Johnny Vieter, uh an intellectual Pied Piper. And that is because he has an uncanny ability uh, to bring along everyone who hears him uh, in his intellectual path. Uh, he does this through his sincerity, his personal charisma, and an incredible sense of humanity that he brings to even the most abstract intellectual ideas. I've had the incredible privilege to see him do this, Uh, recently, uh, or last year, I suppose, at the end of last year, uh, for a group of Palestinians that he amazingly connected with, and even just this week in a heated debate among third-party funders uh, and others in the international arbitration community. Uh, So those are my allegories for my two speakers on either side, uh, and I couldn't then leave out uh, the man uh, whose book we're here to celebrate and contemplate. Uh, when I tell you this one, you're going to think, oh, well, that's so obvious. It didn't take any imagination at all. We would have to call Jan Polson, uh the Lord of the Jungle. Uh, and you're all laughing because you think, oh, it's so obvious, right? He's so authoritative. And he's undoubtedly, essentially, you know, international arbitration royalty. Um, but that's not actually why I would call him uh, the Lord of the Jungle. Uh, and I also would not necessarily... and. The, in the introduction we heard from the other yawn, uh that he uh, can get rough and tumble. Uh, and that's not why I would call him uh, the Lord of the Jungle either. Instead, I would say he deserves that for his uh, fearlessness and ferocity in uh, articulating and standing by his ideas. And I think that is why this book is so remarkable, uh, because he's willing to say ideas that he knows people will disagree with, that he, may, he knows may not ultimately carry the day in practice. But he commits to them because he believes that they're right. Uh, and he stands by them in the, way he, uh, de- in the way he presents them and the way he defends them. Uh, and for that, uh, that is why I find the book when I read it inspirational. That is why uh, when I'm writing my own work, I try to think of uh, Jan's ferocity in saying things that might be controversial and being willing uh, to accept the controversy that follows. I think that's why the first two panels were so interesting and animated. And I think that's what we are going to hear some more of uh, this evening on this last panel. Before I close my opening remarks, I will just say uh, I am a law professor who is used to the Socratic tradition. And if I don't see hands up coming up after, I will call on you. So with that, uh, I will turn it over to Derek Roebuck.
11: Thank you. Thanks to everyone who's organized this, and um, thanks to Jan, who stimulated it all. History can tell us nothing about what's going to happen, but if we change the question to what should happen, a historian may have something to say about what might be possible because it's happened before. We can start with agreeing with Jan that, uh, on the fact that most human beings don't have the remotest chance of obtaining decent justice from state courts. And that the proper place, proper purpose of any imaginable private alternative is to satisfy the needs of the parties. After all, if they don't want to, they don't have to use it. First, I must exclude international commercial arbitration which parties agree to because they have no realistic alternative in litigation. They want a quasi-judicial decision on the facts and applicable law, and they're content with all or nothing. My time limit forces me to concentrate on what we haven't been talking about, where the need is greater, on the great bulk of other disputes. As Jan writes, looking backwards and sideways at other civilizations, it seems more useful to ask how communities have sought to achieve social order and to test models by references to reality rather than reject reality because it doesn't correspond to our idé fixe. In our search for the machinery of utopia, we can't let the concepts limit the technology. So, if, as Jan says, the imaginative use by parties of procedures which borrow variously from arbitration, mediation, and indeed courts, leads to conceptual confusion, tant pis, we say to the philosopher. So what do we want? Jan asks whether any common organizing principles remain to be rescued. Of course they do. The first is that whatever we invent shouldn't harm the common good. The second, that the outcome shall be accepted by both parties, then efficiency and honesty, reasonable speed, affordability, even to the poor. Is it hopelessly utopian to try to assemble a machine which can provide such outcomes? Can we really hope that the state might offer such a boon could someone else do it? We need to consider every kind of process. We know about mediation. The experts say it should be facilitative. The mediators refraining from suggestion suggesting solutions. We shan't take that for granted. If mediation fails and arbitration becomes necessary, we must have different arbitrators. We need to look at that too. Moreover, they shouldn't be nominated by the parties, but then they'd take sides. <coughs> Is that a problem? What if there were a model from our own past which lasted with general approval for over 50 years? I'm working now on mediation and arbitration in the reign of Elizabeth I, 1558-1603. From the start... She put the responsibilities of government into the hands of a privy council, which often sat within walking distance from here. There were members of the nobility, the ones you see prancing about in doublet and hose on television. With others she hoped she could trust, including the judges, out of court. Let's see how its performance measures up to the demands we'd make of our preferred system. Then we can ask if they could do it, why can't we? accessibility. The council sat most days, including Sundays, even once when Christmas Day fell on a Sunday, and kept an office open on the other days. It dealt with every kind of business, from disputes over title to land to issuing individual passports. While coping with foreign wars, invasion, plague and piracy, not to say Ireland, Hundreds of petitions were presented every year. More than 20,000 are reported in the acts of the Privy Council. To cope, the Council had to commission all kinds of mediators and arbitrators. It had total authority, overriding all other courts, regularly staying proceedings there. It didn't follow any bureaucratic forms. Each response was tailor-made. Anyone could present a petition, foreigners and English alike, from the highest, including members of the council themselves, to the lowest. Women were often petitioners and respondents in their own right. The council expressly showed greater concern for them with particular care for the poor and widows. The genuineness of the concern for those who needed special treatment, is shown by an entry for the 5th of April, 1579. It arranged an arbitration and a land dispute between Richard Justice and William White and told the arbitrators, White seems to be a very simple person and so deserves to be pitied. In case it shall be adjudged that the right in the land appertains to him, then the lordships would advise among themselves for some means, how the same may be secured to him and his right heirs without leaving him any power to convey away to any other person than by lease for 21 years, as tenant in tail, but to remain to himself and his heirs. The Dean of St. Paul's was asked to help Richard Brotherton, who seemed to be distempered in his wits. Their lordships think meet to refer him to the dean to consider if either by counsel or physic he may be reduced to order or otherwise bestowed with some of his friends who may take such care of him as is convenient for a man in his case. In which their lordships offer assistance as cause shall require. In other words, please let us know if we can be of further assistance if the counselling or drugs don't work. No claim was too small. A bricklayer and a plumber had done some work for the Earl of Lincoln and complained when he didn't pay them. The council asked him nicely that if there shall be any difference between them in their account, their lordships think meet that two be appointed to judge the same, whereof the one to be appointed by his lordship and the other for the poor men by the council. Now, the council wasn't imposing the choice of arbitrator. It was just making sure that the tradesmen had a proper counterweight to the earls. I can't stress too firmly that these records are evidence of government action. They were spoken and recorded for those they instructed to act, not for public propaganda. For more than a a century, (coughs) Government policy had encouraged trade and accommodated the expectations of merchants, English and foreign. They usually preferred the law merchant to the common law. They also preferred mediation and arbitration by their own kind, which the council was happy to arrange. It would deal with a dispute between foreign merchants about a matter which had no connection with England at all if it thought that would dispose of the matter fairly and promptly. But it would refer it to a foreign power if that were more appropriate. On the 21st of August, 1571, it wrote to the Lord Mayor of London saying, on second thoughts, a dispute between members of the Fortuny family of Florence, previously committed to certain persons, as well English as strangers, did belong rather to the Duke of Florence unto whom they are subjects. On a cold Sunday morning, on the end of November, 1586, eleven members sat in Richmond, William Cecil, Lord Burley in the chair. They commissioned the Admiralty Judge and four doctors of civil law to hear the petition of Peter Fryer, a merchant from Portugal. His ship had been taken under colour of letters of reprisal. When he started an action in the King's Bench, he was still the proper forum as the Admiralty Court. The council had a better idea. It appointed arbitrators to avoid expense of charges and loss of time by following the ordinary course of law. Such a state-provided arbitration scheme couldn't have worked in isolation. It flourished in an environment where mediation and arbitration were the preferred machinery. There are hundreds of private arbitration documents recording the routine, practices, and preferences of the time. What were these arbitrators doing? Typically, each party nominated one or two arbitrators, as they always called them, who would meet to resolve the dispute. They had no easy means of communication other than face-to-face. They were expected to do the best they could for their party but that required them to face the reality that they'd better settle for what they could get. All being well, they could agree on the size of the pot to be divided. Then nothing more subtle than half each would be better than tossing up. If they realized that something more refined was needed, they should at least be able to agree on the arbitrators. Equal numbers from each side, They often included themselves, recognizing that their acquired knowledge of the facts and the stances of the parties and the trust created by their familiarity with one another outweighed the fear that their knowledge of the other side's case would mean that, heaven forbid, the merits would come out. Let's compare that, what was offered then, to what we can manage today. What chance has the poor widow, what chance has anybody, of a resolution on the merits? What does the rule of law ensure? We need the rule of law. It was hard won, and we can see what happens in countries where it can't be relied on. More than half the world, not at all. And for the rest, not always, if it doesn't suit the government. But it works in practice for most of us here, most of the time. And even when it doesn't, we need it as a communal aspiration, a basic foundation for our cooperation as a community. But it is a means to an end. What end? Surely, one which complies with our moral imperative. And what's that? Order, yes. Without a dependable structure, society will fall apart. But for what purpose? That's where we must face the ethical demand which is fairness, fairness for all. If Elizabeth I could insist on disputes being resolved on the merits, providing a universal scheme to do it, apparently without too much fuss or cost, why can't we?
4: Well done, very well done. And with that, I turn the microphone
10: over to John. Good evening, and my thanks also to Jan for this evening. Now, Derek has addressed with his usual wonderful expertise the ghosts of the Paulsonian past up to the 17th century, and now, now I have to deal with the ghosts of the Paulsonian future within a much smaller compass, I'm looking at chapter nine of Jan's book, which is entitled Images in a Crystal Ball. Now, Jan there addresses seven separate topics, which, in his view, and if properly addressed, might enhance the legitimacy of international arbitration. It's an optimistic and highly qualified observation because he rightly recognizes the current weaknesses of international arbitration without losing sight of its perennial strengths. But he there sounds the bugle against idle complacency, smug self-satisfaction and hubris, which are the enemies of arbitral reform. The fact is that for all its successes over the last 50 years, international arbitration is almost always a second best and second choice for most of its users. For most of the English lawyers in this room, if we were personally to be involved in a dispute as a user, we would mostly choose the commercial court or some of us the TCC, not, of course, the family division, and perhaps not with a few exceptions even the chancery division. But left to ourselves, we would probably not choose international arbitration at a neutral seat. And for similar reasons, our Korean colleagues might choose, left to themselves, the Korean courts, and our Russian colleagues, a Russian court. For example, many years ago, when ICA was embroiled in a dispute with its then-landlord, a legal foundation with an even longer arbitral tradition, I had assumed that this dispute would be referred amicably arbitration and certainly not subjected to litigation not at all I was told by Ica's responsible officer at the time this dispute in his words is far too important for arbitration <laughs> mm. and in the face of domestic legal proceedings not in this country the case was settled so even for Ica local culture, local language local expectations and dare I say it after the last session, elemental pragmatism can trump international arbitration. Now, that ICA officer, neither English nor London-based, but well-known as a great advocate for and not against arbitration, will be the new president of ICA in succession to Jan. So the reality is that when faced with non-agreement on courts, it is only then that parties agree international arbitration. It is rarely their first preferred choice. And so, international arbitration, as a system outwardly robust, as the only effective consensual game in town for transnational trade, is in fact a relatively fragile creature. It's more pie and less tiger, less Goliath and more David. And outsiders, that is, those outside, are magic circle, often narcissistic circle, arbitration is indeed seen as inferior to national courts. So I'm going to go through two of Jan's points. I start with the first on self-governance, because he there addresses the strength of international arbitration as an expression of liberty. That is, that disputing parties exercising party autonomy can entrust an international tribunal to decide finally and without appeal or review on the merits, for the most part, any contractual dispute subject only to a limited exception for public policy. I won't go into that anymore. But for English lawyers, this is hardly controversial. To my knowledge, the English courts have never resorted to public policy in refusing enforcement of a New York Convention award. And personally, when I was an advocate, I only rarely met in English commercial arbitration a public policy argument on substantive law which trumped an express contractual term. Now, what is a major issue today and a raging issue in England as elsewhere is public policy as a matter of arbitral procedure. I'm going to talk about the form of public policy in the form of the regulation of arbitrators, of arbitral institutions and arbitration practitioners. Because in the face of that threat, as a defense to outside regulation imposed by parliaments and regulators, we are resorting to self-regulation in the field of international arbitration. And this will now include, almost certainly, self-regulation with codes of conduct for international practitioners. The IBA last year made a brave attempt to introduce such a general code of conduct with a broad scope. It's been criticized, particularly in Geneva, but we shall see if the second edition of their attempt will be a significant improvement on their first. The LCIA, with its proposed new rules for 2014, may introduce a much more limited code addressing only the relationships between an international arbitration practitioner and an LCIA tribunal before which that practitioner appears by name and in person. Now, this is a serious (coughs) debate we cannot ignore without imperiling international arbitration everywhere. To most of us, party autonomy in the field of international arbitration should not be subjected to endless regulations or codes of conduct. The Fureur Reglementaire, so eloquently denounced by Professor Lalive, remains a presumption both as to soft law, but particularly hard law. But today, we have to recognize that we've lost this battle. The train has left the station for good. Outsiders, including European institutions and certain states, are watching and waiting to see what we do. All professionals, they say, elsewhere are regulated. Indeed, as lawyers, we are regulated domestically in this jurisdiction. And if international practitioners do not now self regulate themselves for international arbitration, we can be sure that a much more invasive form of external regulation will be imposed by these outsiders with less informed and less benevolent intentions. So, therefore, as Jan recognizes, there are practical limits to full party autonomy, and certainly as viewed by non arbitration specialists and regulators. We've seen this with arbitral conflicts of interest. In France, the historical homeland for international arbitration, this issue is now subjected to criminal proceedings, not limited to the TAPI case, which Charles Paulsen mentioned, but indeed to another pending infamous case. And so we cannot exclude one day a TAPI case in England with all the adverse public reaction to arbitration that such a case would entail. The absence of effective self-regulation can bring reputational disasters as illustrated by the LIBOR scandal, bankers and the (coughs) BPA's non-role as a regulator or self-regulator and classically, of course, the press in England. So doing nothing is not an option. And to a lesser extent, we have succeeded with self-regulation for practitioners in other practical areas of international arbitration. Let me remind you of the innovative Freddie Reynolds rule as introduced by the Court of Appeal for English Litigation. As are formulated, it applies to an over-lengthy skeleton argument. If the limit is 20 pages, you shouldn't go over 20 pages. And the rule means that if the skeleton exceeds the page limit by, say, one page, the Freddie Reynolds rule allows the other party to remove any page of its choice including the first page of its opponent's skeleton. Now, I'm very happy to say that without legislation, the Freddie Reynolds rule has been adopted by several arbitrators and even extended from over-lengthy memorials and skeleton arguments to over solicitors' correspondence. Because of what professional use is a solicitor's offensive letter to its opponent in an arbitration if the wronged addressee by order of the tribunal can remove the first page of the letter with its name? Now, this is benevolent self-regulation. It's applied by consent of the parties. It's consistent with party autonomy, and it can work. And it could be extended even further because we have an increasing problem with a number of arbitral challenges, some of which are made in bad faith. And so this would be the new self-regulating rule. A party can challenge any arbitrator once. A second challenge can be made if successfully made, without any adverse consequence like tennis and cricket. But if unsuccessful, the lawyer making the challenge must summarily dismiss himself or herself from the arbitration. And as an added refinement to avoid sacrificial patsies, the tribunal could dismiss any lawyer of the tribunal's choice associated with the unsuccessful challenge. Now, arguably, some would say that would be going too far because a dog can bite once, but not twice, but no one, maybe not even an arbitrator, should ever bite the dog. I'm going to jump, in the interest of time, to the last point or topic mentioned by Jan, and it's perhaps the most important of all. What there Jan does is to make a plea for more cosmopolitan scholarship and scholarly influence in the practice and development of international arbitration. Now this is a welcome endorsement of what has long been missing, particularly outside France, with in England perhaps the notable exception, Michael Mustel. I need only refer to Lord Peston's Bernstein lecture delivered 17 years ago in 1997, one year after the Arbitration Act of 1996. And those of us who were there in the Middle Temple Hall can never forget it. Lord Peston was a former professor of economics at this school a distinguished academic figure, but also a powerful politician. He had co-sponsored the arbitration bill for the Labour Opposition in the House of Lords, and he had there given it its unstinting support. A year later, in private, he much regretted his role. He said if he had understood what arbitration meant, he would have opposed the bill, and the Arbitration Act would not have become law. In his public lecture... He spoke a little more quietly. He said this, I would have been a good deal happier if I could have seen some empirical studies of the inefficiency and costliness of proceedings under the earlier law. was referring to the Arbitration Act 1950 and the special case. He continued, more important still, I would like to see some continuing monitoring and research on arbitration under the new law ways must be found of placing more information about what happens in practice in the hands of first-class researchers. Their work might well lead to improvements in how arbitrators operate. Although these are early days and a later generation will have the responsibility, we must recognize that sometime in the future there will be a new arbitration act. And I, for one, would like to see it research-based and evolving from the monitoring of the 1996 Act. Now, since 1997, there have been brave, albeit modest, attempts to collect arbitral statistics in England, first by Lord Manser's committee and more recently by Wendy Miles and Justin Lee, the latter published only this month in Derrick's journal, Arbitration. Now, while both attempts are useful, they are very limited exercises and certainly not what Lord Peston had in mind nor what we need today. Today we are being asked to consider amending Section 69 of the 1996 Act to make it an opt-in for judicial review on questions of English law rather than an opt-out. We're also being asked to remedy other defects in the 1996 Act. We're being asked to consider adding to arbitration rules a right to appeal to an appellate arbitral tribunal we're being asked to reconsider, as have the French, the need for or propriety of confidentiality in international arbitrations, thought to be a fundamental principle of English commercial arbitration. We're being asked to reject the enlargement of public policy to cater for Sharia tribunals and Sharia tribunal awards. We're being asked to overcome somehow the baleful effects on London arbitration of the ECJ's decision in West Tankers and the ambiguities at best in the New Judgment's regulation. And yet when we go to Whitehall or Brussels to discuss these matters, we start the argument with nothing. No data, no statistics, no scholarly research into the actual workings of the 1996 Act for international users of arbitration. And so we come out with our usual anecdotes. We have paid, we are still paying, we shall pay further, a heavy price for our complacency with increasing attacks on the legitimacy of international arbitration. And so Lord Pesson's warning cannot be ignored for much longer. And this, fundamentally, is Jan's final point in the last chapter of this magnificent book. We do need more scholarship. We do need more data. We do need more research. And I very much hope the Lord Pesson's warning coupled with Jan's work, can be heeded by those to whom it was addressed, namely, all of us here tonight. Thank you for listening.
4: Those are two very hard acts to follow, but I have the feeling our audience is up to it, so I'm looking for hands interesting questions to take on some of the interesting issues that were just raised. And I renew my threat to call on someone. Yes. Um, Tony, you
5: think there is a limit to we talk about code of ethics professional conduct um, some may say that even the best self regulatory model may not be enough. Um, what would you say to that?
10: I would say Derek should answer that question first.
11: I would say I'm still stunned by what Johnny said and trying to recover my wits because it was so powerful and so essential that if people don't take it up and do something about it, then the results will be as dire as imagination can conceive of. I forgot what your question was now. No. Um, no. Um, no. What you, what? Uh, the
5: question was is self
11: regulation yeah. enough? Do I, we need well, something else? Well, you know, more? I think there's one thing that has to be stressed, and that is the distinction between um, international commercial arbitration as about, and the rest. Jan's book is on the idea of arbitration. It is not the idea of international commercial arbitration. And we have to be careful. The um, metaphor of floods is so much in everybody's mind that it's easy to express it here. We don't want ideas from one slurping into another without thought. And while it might be necessary in... International commercial arbitration, and I sometimes wish it didn 't have that word there, and we called it you know international commercial Widgetry or something, so that we could keep it separate because there 's a whole world of need for our, of, uh, for some kind of regulation when arbitration is a com- pretty well, apart from from what John has talked about of settlement and others, where you've got to go there compared with the much less, much smaller need for the whole world of arbitration and mediation, which is going to I think, develop we can hear it now in government policy, everywhere you look, there's going to be more arbitration here, it's an idea that it's a panacea doesn't cost anything, you know. You don't have to have legal aid at all. Um And then, even the present government talks about cooperation, you know, and and people in communities and being able to relate and solve their difficulties. Well, that's one thing, but that's not what international commercial arbitration is, as far as I can understand. So I think it's very important that um, the question of regulation be
10: divided. I'll answer by saying you start with self-regulation. I think it's impossible to have what happened when I first came to the bar in the last century, where we had no code of conduct at all. When you were called, you were given a little book written by Lord Justice Singleton of some 40 pages, which uh, told you, be a good chap and don't be a bad chap. And this gave rise to difficulty because you have American clients with their American attorneys coming and saying, plead fraud, we're going to hit these guys. And you say, well, I can't plead fraud because fraud in our culture is a criminal offence and I have to have sufficient evidence to satisfy myself there is a case for fraud. Otherwise, uh, I will commit um, disciplinary misconduct. And in those days, if you mispleaded fraud, you could end your career at the bar, certainly at the commercial bar, that could be it. And they would say, well, that's rubbish. We plead fraud every day of the week in America. (laughs) Show us where where, where, where where it says you can't do it. And, of course, you say, well, we don't have a code of conduct. I can just tell you. you're a wimp. We'll go somewhere else. (laughs) Then we had a code of conduct. And it was only about 10 pages. And there was a little paragraph saying, one, you've got to wear a waistcoat, which I never did. So that was ignored by (coughs) most, most of the juniors at my time. And secondly, you can't plead fraud without sufficient evidence. Next time these attorneys came in, I would say, there, I can't do it. Okay, what's the next point? They'd move on. So I think you can never outlaw the bad guys doing the bad things. But I think if you have a a, a code or self-regulation, you help the good guys to be good. They can actually say, look, I'm not allowed to coach this witness. I can meet the witness and explain to the witness what's going to happen at the hearing, but I can't tell him what the answers are to questions which he's likely to get in cross-examination. And I think it's not just a question of of playing fair. Is you want a level playing field. And we've all been in a situation as council where you are constricted, but you know the other side is not. Now, regardless of whether that's proper or improper, it's just wrong for one side to be able to do things which the other side can't do. So I think we need a level playing field with expectations which are the same, but also I think we need to reinforce the good guys to be good. It won't be enough. We've lost so much ground that outside regulation, I think, eventually is inevitable. But at least the debate will then start with a platform that we've established. For example, last Friday I read the new code of conduct for the bar. I don't know if anybody else has read it. I bet you haven't because it's unreadable. And suddenly you learn that you can't show papers to your pupil because you need the consent of the lay client to show, quote, confidential materials, i.e. the papers, to your pupil. And the consent is not just consent. It has to be informed consent. Now, at that point, we're getting into difficulties. I mean, I don't have pupils anymore, but... When I did, they would share everything that I knew about the case. That's how you learn to be an advocate. You learn from the papers what not to say and what to say and how to say it. But we seem to have a problem now with this regulator who's imposed this, this, uh, to him or her, reasonable discipline that if you're going to show confidential papers to, quote, an outsider, i.e. your pupil, your student, you should have the lay client's informed consent. But how you get that, I don't know. So this is the kind of example where if we don't look after ourselves, somebody's going to stick it to us. And with international arbitration, we're talking of 167 potential state regulators? I don't know. We know that in Singapore, mediators are going to have to be licensed and will be regulated by the Singapore government. Now, how soon will it be before somebody has that same idea for international arbitrators? I don't know.
11: Well, it's totally unenforceable, isn't it?
10: You can go to prison. Well, in Singapore, yes, but <laughs> but,
11: but in in, um, in countries, you know, in states where the rule of law applies, they they uh, surely you, <laughs> you, how are you going to stop an informal mediation?
10: Ask the uh, Singapore government. Possibly.
4: Okay, I'm not sure we want to end on Ask the Singapore Government, so let's get one more question. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually going
9: to ask
4: about the Singapore Government.
9: The Singapore government okay. It does follow from what Morgan just said. It's not actually what Johnny described. It's not what Johnny described, which is the international arbitration community or the arbitration community uh, creating our product, self regulating, going to governments. Asking governments for what we'd like for our, for our lovely machine to work. It's the other way around. Or I'd, I'd, I'd like your view on whether what's happening is the other way around. Because we begin to get, and I wasn't going to actually mention Singapore by name, but we get Singapore who decide that they want mediation for their political and economic purposes. And so they come to us. And they tell us, we're going to mediate, and we're going to mediate in this way. And I would suggest that the same thing is happening with commercial arbitration. Um, Kuala Lumpur have implemented specific Islamic-sensitive arbitration rules. Excellent, I've discussed them, all sorts of merits for them. But their fundamental driver was the government there wanting Kuala Lumpur to be a center for Islamic finance and Islamic law. Singapore is driving its arbitration community because it perceives it to be in its economic interests. And is it, it may be the case that actually in in England we will simply wither on the vine with benign neglect, as is the case for so many British industries and institutions. Um, But is it the case that in fact the future that we face for the next few decades may in fact be international commercial arbitration, certainly, because... That's what's economically interesting. Um, being assumed, suborned, uh, taken over, actually by interested sovereign states and governments.
10: What do you do? <laughs> I don't know. And
11: I don't you can
9: know. you can draw parallel with Queen Elizabeth and her and her council.
10: I think if I can answer briefly, I don't know, but I think one development that has shocked me profoundly is the Tupi case in France. Uh, we all have an enormous respect for the scholarship and understanding of international arbitration, both the scholarship from Dijon and Paris, but also on the bench in the shape of Dominique Cacher. So this was a very pro-arbitration jurisdiction. One case where it made immense sense for the Minister concerned, Christian Lagarde, to refer the matter to arbitration for a final decision and kill the case where the French state had obviously picked up a grotesque liability, the only real issue being the amount of damages, to send that to arbitration before three very distinguished figures, at least distinguished on paper. Adverse result, political drama, political scandal, arbitrators, Officers in home search, computers seized, one arbitrator arrested, but for his age he'd be in prison. And then this extension to the lawyers, to one of the parties, to Christine Lagarde herself, the former president. And when you look at this and you listen to some of the French non-lawyers speak about Tapie and the newspapers, you would think you were in Karachi. I mean, this is exactly the kind of governmental sponsored criticism of arbitration that you would see uh, in that kind of jurisdiction. And for me, that is a profound change. And I think the pendulum in my lifetime has swung so far in favor of arbitration. I'm just beginning to wonder whether it's going to boomerang back. And if it is, we're all in trouble because we think we're wonderful. We've been talking <laughs> to each other for decades about how wonderful we are. But, you know, if you go out into the street and say... Is there anything which prevents a lawyer deliberately lying to an arbitral tribunal? No. We try to put it in the LCIA code of conduct. One person challenged it. He wasn't French. He wasn't continental. He was an American. He said that's very controversial. To stop people deliberately lying to a tribunal in a code of conduct forming part of arbitration rules is very controversial. And when you hear that, you just think we're living in a strange world, if that's a general perception of what we are. Because it's not a perception that's acceptable in the street. And I think that's the danger. I think we're going to find ourselves on the wrong end of an argument if we don't, don't start sort of putting our own house in order. But um, I may be in a minority. I'd like to hear what Catherine says about codes of conduct and um, so forth.
4: Uh I'm extremely tempted, but I see we're past our time, so I don't know if I have permission to say anything. Uh, okay, I, I will say just two words before I invite us all to go up to the lovely reception that's waiting for us. And that is, I think, uh, self-regulation is uh, already exists in international arbitration in large part. I would say, actually, the way we think about we don't use that word, but the way arbitrators are regulated, 90% of all the rules, 90% of all the procedures that actually determine whether an arbitrator stays or goes in an arbitration have been created by and are administered by private international organizations. Yes, eventually courts can get involved, but as a backstop. Okay? Uh, I think the same trend is essentially happening with attorneys in the examples that Johnny identifies, but in many ways what they're doing is systemizing and legitimizing and formalizing and rendering more transparent trends that are already ha- have existed. Arbitrators are de facto exercising these powers, they are making these judgments, uh, and so what is happening now is an effort to make them more transparent for the reasons that Johnny uh, uh, explained. Your question was, is there ever a limit? Of course there's a limit. Uh, the limits, to some extent, are pragmatic when you get backlash, but also no self-regulation exists in a vacuum. Effective self-regulation exists within a context of legitimacy, how, you know, how well you actually manage responsibly the regulation that you're entrusted with, uh, and the best, I think, self-regulation at a global level has some backstop of enforcement. And unless you are uh, exactly, uh, truly a disciple of uh, um, Emmanuel Gaillard's book, I think you believe that courts end up you know, playing that role at some point, and for our attorneys, perhaps uh, bar associations will always have some sort of backup role. But I think what we've seen and what we will see is, is a shift towards, for all the reasons uh, that Johnny identifies, uh, to, to self-regulation. Um, and we can talk in some other format about what exactly self-regulation <laughs> means, but I think now the hour is late. You've been a very attentive audience. We've had wonderful presentations. Lots to discuss over cocktails uh, on the fifth floor. Am I correct? Oh, oh, sorry. No, excuse me. The most important moment of the evening. How embarrassing! Please welcome John Holton.
6: If I were a politician, I would say, dear friends, I feel your hunger, <laughs> and I won't be long. I want to thank two groups of people collectively from my heart. First of, you, first of all, those of you who have come this evening to attend. Thanks to you, I don't feel so lonely anymore. <laughs> it took me one year to write 600 pages of this book, and then it took me six years to cut out 300 pages. (laughs) That's seven years. That's biblical. You remember Leah and Rachel? You get to wonder, is there anybody else in the universe who could possibly be interested in this stuff? And so apparently some are. So thank you for being here. I address myself on one single substantive topic to the students in the audience. Don't get carried away if there's any risk in reading this book, you will see that it's a book which suggests that it is a good thing to develop a better understanding of arbitration because it could be a useful tool, and because of a good understanding, it will be improved. Don't misunderstand that for over-enthusiasm on the part of the author, and please don't get over-enthusiastic yourself and close the book until you have read and thought about the last section of chapter one, which says, The Nobler Objective, Colon, Good Courts. Understand that first, unless you misunderstand the intentions of the authors. The panelists, my, the second group of people I wish to thank for making me feel that seven years of work was not wasted on utter trivialities. Uh, can you imagine the feeling of an author toward his manuscript as time goes on? Um, it is, Johnny Vider would say, a constant oscillation between feeling suicidal and murderous. And what you want to murder is the manuscript. And you pick it up and every page, which you have seen so many times, is utter boring drivel. <laughs> That's how you feel. And it's very nice to hear that some people think that there is something in there which isn't absolutely banal. And so for that you have my heartfelt thanks. The aim of any serious legal book, I think, is not to be right. Uh, In sciences, people are right or wrong. Uh, A remedy cures the ailment or it doesn't. It's right or wrong. Engineering the airplane flies or it doesn't. It's right or wrong. Uh, In law, there isn't really anything right or wrong. You can win a case with an argument, but that doesn't mean that's right. I think maybe things fall in categories of being more or less superficial, more or less profound. So if a book stimulates deeper thinkers to greater depths, that's all an author can ask for. So to those two groups, thank you very much, and we'll see you outside.